Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of Batman Nightcast, part of the Fire and Water podcast network that chronicles the legendary comic book adventures of the Dark Knight Detective. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Chris Franklin. And we're back after an unintended break in our regular monthly schedule. Uh, had some conflicts with other recordings, had some personal injuries that kind of took us off the board for October, but we're <laughs> back. Chris, how are you feeling? I'm feeling pretty good. Uh, my shoulders uh, actually connected to my my arms actually connected to my shoulders, so that's good. You know, so <laughs> it was touch and go there for a little bit. <laughs> it was. It was just kind of hanging loose. I felt like a amigo figure with a broken rubber band, basically what it amounts to. <laughs> hey, Clark Griswold, you're not supposed to fall off the roof until Christmas. What are you? What were you thinking? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. Um, hey, you know what we haven't done in a while. We haven't talked about the Joker. The Joker? Oh, who's that? I've never heard of him. Oh, I forgot about him. Yeah, the Joker. Right. And I was gonna I was gonna jump right into the segment, but uh yeah, actually you're right. Like I mean there was there was actual movie news about the Joker. Now they're saying that Jared Leto is reprising his role as the Joker in the Snyder Cut Justice League. Which I am glad that the reports have stopped calling that reshoots for his <laughs> Justice League movie. Um, because that's clearly not what he's doing. He's clearly adding things and new things that were never in his original plan. So he's actually like responding to what failed about the Joss Whedon theatrical cut of the Justice League and basically using that as a mulligan to make a new thing. <laughs> yeah, Just bizarre. I can't even begin to... This is... I, I, I gotta say, at this point, this is pretty unprecedented. Especially... I mean, you think of what you want with the of the Justice League movie, and I, and I, for the most part, I enjoyed myself at that movie. There are things about that movie as released that I do enjoy, half baked as it is, and you know, with two different chefs in the kitchen. But uh, which is my final kind of final opinion on it. But you know, it it bombed. <laughs> it, it was a flop. Yes, <laughs> and it's getting all this money like you know shoved into it, and now the, for a movie you know, that won't be in theaters. The movie that won't be in theaters. I mean, I know right now there's, you know, question of when when our movie's going to be back in theaters. And, of course, that's the big, you know, that's got all the theater chains. The theater chains are practically, you know, a lot of them are ready to just go bankrupt. Uh, so it's that's awful. But, but you know, yeah, and, and then to Jared Leto as the Joker uh, was a pretty controversial <laughs> – <laughs> casting and performance there uh and, and and so you know it's like okay now you're putting more money behind this and there's very few people that were like <laughs> oh yeah that was great i mean i think even snipe most snyder diehards are kind of like yeah i didn't really yeah we didn't ask for this <laughs> yeah this is one thing we didn't ask for zach you know it's like and i i mean I mean, Jared Leto is a very talented uh, musician, as you and yeah. and and Neil point out in your shows, and he's 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 a very good actor. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe I didn't care for his visual as a Joker, and honestly, didn't feel the threat level that he was trying to portray as the Joker in the version of the Suicide Squad that I that was released. But you know, I mean, just trying to be positive, maybe he'll show us something that we didn't see before. But it, it is yeah. just, I mean. Outside of you know whether you like it or not, it's just really weird that they're putting this much money into into things that have been proven to not go over very well. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Like, like, how how is the presence of the Joker going to inform that story about the Justice League fighting Dark Side's 
dad? I don't even remember. I think it's yeah. It's I, I guess it's yeah. actually Dark Side at this point. Yeah, oh, I think yeah. I think Steppenwolf's like getting he's in it, but I guess yeah. he's getting backburnered a little bit so they can actually use Dark Side. He's uh, Steppenwolf's Dark Side's uncle. Right, right. Get to, to uh, yeah, Jared Leto is a a really good actor, but people were already primed to hate him because of a lot of his off-screen backstage antics, and he's a very diff- he can be a very difficult person to work with, and he basically got into the character to the point where he was kind of terrorizing. At, well, I mean, in, worst case, he was terrorizing his castmates. Best case, he was just being an ass. Right. Um, but like, just really like, like, not like he, he needed a stronger director, a stronger hand in the director or producer's chair to basically slap him and say, stop that. You're not right. an actual psychopath. Okay. You're right. a professional you're, or we're going to fire you. Yeah. Um, I thought suicide was a, a dumb movie, like half baked. That wasn't, I didn't like the look with the tattoos or the grills or anything like that. I could see what they were going for, but it was just like, yeah, that's not a joke. Like, I, I remember very little of the movie now that I think about it. But there was one kind of emotional response that I had while I was watching it. And this may be completely off. It's been three or four years now. I don't know. I remember at the time that I saw it, watching Leto's Joker and thinking if they didn't dress him up like he came out of Hot Topic, if they actually dressed him in a purple suit, took the tattoos off and everything like that, I felt like there was something inside his performance that that sort of reminded me of the Batman, the animated series Joker, where like Mm. I I could see him making that leap if they had written the material more like that. Basically, if Paul Dini had written a a, a, a movie with the Joker... I was like, I can kind of see him being the live-action version of Mark Hamill's animated series Joker. Now, I don't know what I was thinking, because if you look at the pictures of Joe, like, I mean, that's clearly not who he was, but there was something in his performance that I was like, I can see it buried in there. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Again, it's been years <laughs> since I've seen the movie. I can't really point to any specifics uh, from the performance that, that led me to think that, but that was just kind of the, the feeling I had at the time. So... Mm. And I'm, I'm sure that's not what we're going to get from uh, what I, like, I, don't, I have no idea what part he'll have in this movie. I'm never going to see it. So <laughs> I don't know what Snyder is going to want him to do, but um, I don't know. Well, it could have been it could have been just because Harley was there, too. You know, perhaps. The, perhaps the that's whole, all it was. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, that's part of it. And I actually think that <laughs> Ben Affleck's Batman is his most uh, animated series like in that movie because he doesn't say anything. Basically, <laughs> he just he drops in like a shadow, beats the hell out of the villains, and and you know flies away at the end, yeah. which is which is actually pretty cool. I gotta say in, in that movie, but but uh, yeah, I yeah I could kind of see what you what you're getting at there. Yeah, so I, maybe the only reason Snyder's going to use him is just to. To really piss us off and confirm that, oh, the dead Robin? That's Dick Grayson. (laughs) 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 Nobody ever said that was Jason Todd. That's Dick Grayson. (laughs) Eat that, fanboys. (laughs) Uh, Speaking of Batman, uh, uh, just for fun... Andrew and I watched um, we watched that Death in the Family film. That's oh, yeah. the choose your own ending. Uh, and I gotta say, it is multiple choose your own because if you choose like basically, you guys don't know about it. It's one of the DC uh, direct to home media animated movies. 
and uh, it it it's it kind of takes the movie. They did a movie under the Red Hood, which is far superior to the comic mm-hmm. series. Yeah, I enjoyed Still the movie under the Red Hood. Yeah, it's it's very good. It's got it's got large a large part of that cast has come back okay. uh, because you've got uh, John DiMaggio as a Joker, nice. and you've got Bruce Greenwood as Batman, which I really like him as Batman. Uh, I did too. Get- I thought he was good as an older Batman. Yeah. Yeah, you can't get Kevin Conroy. He's great. He was also Batman on Young Justice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, but but anyway, so it kind of takes it. You know, that's the movie where obviously Jason Todd is killed, comes back as a Red Hood. Well, they take elements of that, and then at different points, you can choose. You know, does Robin does Robin die? Does he live? Does Batman save him? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and if you pick like like the one of those three, then from that like one or two of them, you can get other multiple decisions you can make throughout. And so it's not just like you make a decision once. No, you can go back and plug and play like different different scenarios, just like a, just like a choose your own adventure book. And it's really neat. I mean, you know, with a, it's a, I think it's a really cool idea and it was, it was a lot of fun. Now it's rated R, which is really Stupid, because there's no need for it to be rated R, and I didn't see anything in it that should have made it rated R. I mean, I guess there's like heads in a duffel bag or something like that, but I mean, and I don't even really know. I don't consider it. I would think it's a hard PG-13 maybe, mm-hmm. but why is it R? I have no idea. But yeah, it was fun. I mean, I'm, I have not watched a lot of the most more recent DC animated. I love the first ones, but when they kind of went to that New 52 style, I just dropped out. And yeah, I, I, I think I think Flashpoint was the last one I saw. I think that was my cutoff, and yeah. after that, I was like, okay, the material that they're adapting, I just I don't care about this anymore. So I think um, maybe the Killing Joke was after that. I did see the Killing Joke. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> saw that one. I saw that one in the theater because uh, they did that one night thing in the theater, and I'm just like, oh, that opening part. It's like, oh, and Bruce Tim was behind that man. I hate to say that, but he was. So, yeah, damn it, Bruce, what did you do? <laughs> Both of you. <laughs> Both of you. Yeah, exactly. Both Bruce's. God. <laughs> but yeah, it's fun. I, I enjoyed it. It was a lot of uh, uh, there's some there's some interesting twists and they go in some interesting directions with some of the resolutions. And and uh, if it's out there and you see it, you know, uh, I don't know if it will. DC Universe won't be around much longer, so it probably will never show up on there. Uh, but who knows? It might show up. Well, you wouldn't be able to probably do the. You probably don't have to buy the DVD or the Blu-ray to do the Choose Your Own Adventure thing anyway, so that's probably the only way to go. But if you see it, uh, you know, you got 25 bucks you don't mind spending, I think you'll enjoy it if you're a Batman fan. So, mm-hmm. Or they do something like um, what the movie Clue did, where they basically just assemble all the all the different uh, endings possible sort of in one in one little thing. They'll do that on HBO Max or something, maybe. There you go. And Michael McKean will show up at the end and say, I'm going to go home and have sex with my wife or whatever. <laughs> That would be an interesting finale to Death in the Family. That would, that would hey, he did play the Joker on Le- uh, the Legend of the Dark Knight episode of uh, animated series. So That's there right, you go. he did. That's right. Yeah. Um, has Tim Curry voiced a DC villain? He seems like he should have. He voiced the Joker, yeah. uh, but was replaced by Mark Hamill. Oh, <laughs> oh well, yeah, he was go. the Joker. He was the Joker originally, and they and they recorded at least one or two episodes before they decided. Yeah, he's just not. I, I can't imagine. Like, I guess that's kind of like Eric Stoltz's Marty McFly. How do you walk up to somebody that's a that's a good actor and yeah. go, "Yeah, you're just not it." You know, that's kind of weird. But yeah, it's not working. But 
Yeah, especially Tim Curry, but uh, it's like, dude, I've got the evil clown thing down. Have you seen it? I mean, come on. <laughs> this ain't my first circus. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> All right, well, let's get it into the comics. So Cool. Um, f- folks, I know that we just covered two Joker stories on the last episode. Uh, and if you think the Joker is way overexposed and needs to take a back seat for a while, I wholeheartedly agree with that. Uh, <laughs> and I am more than happy to put a moratorium on Joker stories on this podcast after this episode. Because there is a specific comic that I wanted to discuss on this podcast before the year is up. And it happens to feature the Joker. I've mentioned it before, but Detective Comics 617 was the first single-issue Batman story I ever read. Uh, It was the first non-trade paperback or hardcover Batman book that I ever held in my hands, and directly led to my becoming a regular monthly collector of comics in general, and Batman comics in particular. And that issue came out in 1990, 30 years ago. Even though my earliest comics were in 1988, they were kind of sporadic and random, almost accidental acquisitions. And then in 1989, through my brother, I gained access to the collections The Dark Knight Returns, Batman Year One, A Death in the Family, Arkham Asylum, and The Killing Joke. But in the summer of 1990, my mom came home from the grocery store with a copy of Detective Comics 617. It was a new Batman story that I hadn't pawed over dozens of times, and it had Batman fighting a version of the Joker who, despite his thinness, seemed larger than life. I saw Batman in the theaters eight times in 1989, and I wasn't yet in second grade, so the fact that I managed to get so many people to take me there is one of the greater accomplishments of my life until the final episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. But... (laughs) As great as the Cape Crusader was in that movie, and he is great, I was all hashtag Team Joker that year. Though Joker wasn't just my favorite villain, he was arguably my favorite fictional character back then, and probably stayed there until I saw the animated series whose twisted versions of Mr. Freeze and Two-Face gave the Clown Prince of Crime a run for his money. When I held Detective Comics 617 in my hands, mouth agape at Norm Brayfogle's stylized depictions of the characters, I asked my mom, where did you get this? She told me, the Eagle Grocery Store, a few blocks away, which I should have figured out since she obviously just got it when she was grocery shopping. In spite of the half a dozen G.I. Joe comics that had come into my possession before, I don't think I ever thought to ask a question before. Where did they come from? And more importantly... Were there more to be had? I asked my mom to take me with her the next time she went to Eagle, and a week or so later I went, and there on the shelves of magazines and comics were two consecutive issues of Batman, 450 and 451, which also featured the Joker on the covers. I got them both, and from then on I was a regular collector of Batman and Detective Comics, until the culmination of the Nightfall storyline with Batman 500 in 1993 and by then I was hashtag Team X-Men and devoted to all things mutant at Marvel. My comics interests and habits have changed a lot in the three decades since, but in all that time I have been a reader and a lover of comics. Thirty years, uninterrupted basically, and what set me on this course was Detective Comics 617. It has an early July 1990 cover date, but according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, it hit newsstands and shelves on May 22, 1990. 
The issue cost $1 and sported a cover by Norm Frickin' Brayfogle. The cover is hard to describe. <laughs> the Joker stands in a purple and white and green court jester's costume. Batman appears in the foreground as a super stylized, kind of monstrous version of himself with red eyes and jagged fangs. There are also bats floating around the cover and a ton of arcane symbols and runes. There's no background to speak of, just lines stretching down out of the DC bullet in the upper left corner. Chris, what do you think of this cover? Oh, this is uh, this is an attention grabber. I mean, a lot of Bray Fogle's covers are symbolic, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> this one is the ultimate symbolic cover. And of course, we'll get inside the stories about symbols as well. But yeah, there are symbols everywhere. I mean, there's a yin and yang symbol. There's a pentagram. I mean, there's the 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 all seeing eye with the pyramid. I mean, it's it it, it it's it's kind of it's crazy. I mean, this one leapt off the stands at me in it. Although I gotta admit, when I first saw this cover, I thought, oh, is this a callback to uh, Batman versus the Incredible Hulk? Uh, <laughs> Because of oh. the, you know, the 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 Joker, the Joker's in a jester's outfit. He gets the power of the Shaper of Worlds, you yep, know. Yep. And I know you covered this comic Rob, with yeah. Rob on Treasury Cast, and you know he 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 warps reality, and mm-hmm. and so it kind of looks like that. Um, oh gosh, so it, it does. Yeah, it's what that's the first thing it made me think of. Also, it looked like oh, the Joker's a little punchy on this cover. <laughs> He's got it's it's Jack Nicholson's Joker. He's got a little gut, you know. It but does. <laughs> it does. His legs sting. You're like yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah. His body shape is completely different than the way Bray Fogle usually draws him. Yeah, he's... yeah. His legs are. It, I, I get that. Is he doesn't really have a paunch. It's the way his torso's bent, mm-hmm. but his legs look kind of thick. Yeah. So he does. <laughs> he does look a little chubby. It's it's his little, but it, it it copies what we see inside on something else. So it right, kind of right, right. makes sense. But yeah, no, I love this cover. It's great. I love. I always love it when. I mean, Bray Fogle did some of the. He did some actual. I mean, the cover with. Uh, I can't remember the number, but it's with that. Cornelius Sturt character where oh, yeah. Batman's inside his mouth. I mean, that cover is just frightening. <laughs> it's just like, holy cow. I mean, he could draw some actual scary stuff, but this is, yeah, I love it. It's great. Yeah, cosign all of that. I mean, I, I don't have like an objective view of this cover just because of what it means to me, but um, yeah, I just remember looking at this just being like, what is happening? Why does the Joker dress like that? Why does Batman look like a vampire? Of course, this was long before I ever read a va- Batman as a vampire story. But, mm-hmm. yeah. All right, getting into it. A Clash of Symbols is written by Alan Grant, drawn by Norm Brayfogle, inked by Steve Mitchell, lettered by Todd Klein, colored by Adrian Roy, and edited by Denny O'Neill. The Batman patrols the rooftops of Gotham City looking for the Joker, but so far has come up empty. On the street below, a psychic medium named Cassandra, specializing in tarot reading, Ouija, and ESP, holds a session with a client in her office. As Cassandra looks into the crystal ball, she warns of a man and imminent danger. At that moment, a man runs into the shop brandishing a knife and demanding money from the ladies. Cassandra's client screams at the sight of the blade. Batman hears the scream from the rooftop across the street. He swings down into the psychic's shop and quickly knocks out the would-be robber. The client storms out, indignant that her medium didn't tell her what she wanted to hear about her handsome doctor. Cassandra tells Batman she will call the police to pick up the man on the floor and asks if he needs anything else. Batman thanks her and leaves, 
but after a moment comes back inside. All of his traditional methods of tracking down the Joker have thus far netted zero leads, so maybe seeking guidance from the spirit world. He sits down at Cassandra's table, and she has him draw a card from her tarot deck, and naturally the card he pulls is the Fool, also known as the Joker. Batman starts to think about the Joker as a symbol of killing, whereas his own form, the Bat, is meant to be a symbol of fear. This leads Batman to recall a previous encounter with the Clown Prince of Crime, and we flash back three years. The Joker and four henchmen storm into a museum gallery, disrupting a charity event for the gallery's exhibition of ancient relics and symbols. The Joker announces his intent to rob the artifacts and the wealthy guests, which includes Bruce Wayne in attendance. A security guard goes for his gun, but is shot dead by one of the henchmen. Joker disarms the other security guard and laughs when the man is too quivering with fear to stop him. Bruce tries to slip away, but one of the henchmen sees him and knocks him to the floor. The Joker grabs a Mayan funerary dish, the gallery's curator tries to stop him, and the Joker smashes the dish over his head and then throws him into a glass display of ancient tarot cards. The Joker collects the cards and stuffs them into his bag of loot, except for the Joker card which falls onto Bruce Wayne, waking him up. Bruce crawls around a display and changes into his Batman costume unseen. He picks up some fallen Chinese coins and throws them at Joker's goons, then whips a batarang out, knocking one of the goons cold. The Joker and his two remaining henchmen open fire on Batman, who dives behind another display for cover. He grabs two archaic knives and, tossing them with pinpoint accuracy, the knives stab the hands of the henchmen, disarming them. The Joker runs up the spiral staircase, trying to escape. Batman throws two more knives that sail past the Joker and slice the cable holding a glass chandelier above him. The chandelier crashes down on the stairs, cutting off Joker's exit. As Batman stalks up the stairs toward the Joker, the Clown Prince reaches his leg over the banister and kicks out at a totem pole. It starts to fall, but before it can crush the people below, Batman leaps from the stairs to intercept the totem pole. They crash onto a display, and the pole rolls onto Batman's leg, pinning him down. The Joker pulls a firebomb out from his jacket and tosses it down on the totem pole. It goes up in flames, igniting the walls of the gallery as Batman strains under the pole. The Joker tells him that fire is symbolic of rebirth, and maybe Batman will be reborn as Phoenix Man. Then he laughs and runs out of the gallery, locking the doors, trapping the people inside the burning museum. As the people panic and the gallery fills with smoke and fire, Batman nearly gives in to despair before remembering that his superpower is to be better than anybody whenever the story calls for it. With Herculean effort, he lifts the totem pole off of his legs and frees himself. Ignoring the pain and possible bone and nerve damage, he pushes past the museum attendees and slams himself against the locked doors, throwing them wide open. While the crowd evacuates, Batman tosses a rope up and climbs to the roof. He runs across the rooftops, chasing Joker's getaway car, all the while thinking about the symbol of the bat and what it means to various cultures around the world, from symbols of death, to talismans of fear, to ward off greater demons, to avatars of war. Batman uses the symbol in his war on crime. In Gotham City, the bat is the symbol that superstitious and cowardly criminals must fear. 
Spotting the Joker's car racing up the street below, Batman leaps from the rooftop, swinging on his rope to intercept the car, glides right into Joker's sights, and kicks through the windshield, smashing into the Joker and taking the soft top off of his convertible. The car careens out of control and crashes into a wall. Batman lays sprawled out in the back seat, catching his breath and letting a smile creep across his face as the Joker slumps unconscious in the front. The flashback ends with Batman back in Cassandra's shop. She tells him her crystal ball doesn't give her any clues into the Joker's current whereabouts, but Batman sees an Ouroboros in the ball, signifying his never-ending battle with the clown. As he gets about to leave, Cassandra tells him that in Tarot, the Joker symbolizes an ending, a death, even when least suspected. She tells Batman to be careful. He thanks her and goes back out to resume his search, wondering if his next encounter with the Joker will be another part of their endless cycle, or if it will be the last time. All right, Chris, what did you think of the story? Oh, man. Uh, You know, now this wasn't as seminal uh, for me as it was for you, obviously. Uh, But when I bought this off the stand, I mean, I was used to Alan Grant's psychological approach. But I have to say this this story kind of coalesces a lot of um, a lot of the themes that were in Batman Joker stories uh, leading up to this, Mm -hmm. like like that sense of finality to their relationship that was in the Dark Knight Returns. It was in the killing joke. Um, but you know, Grant puts his own spin on it with the, you know, really just coming out and, and pointing out all the, the, the symbol, the, the symbolic, uh, nature of their, uh, their archetypes. And, and so I, I feel like, I really do feel like this, and this is, I'm not just blowing smoke up your, you know, <laughs> gas pipe, uh, this tailpipe, this is, uh, it, it's a, it's a undiscovered gem in a lot of ways. It should be. And every Batman Joker collection, you know, every Joker, greatest Joker stories ever told. Because, I mean, it, it just says so much about, you know, their relationship. And I like the fact that it takes, I mean, this story, uh, these comics and, and Batman 450 and 451 were the return of the Joker right. after uh, a death in the family. Right. He had appeared kind of off panel in a lonely place of dying because he was mani- manipulating Two-Face, we find out at the end of that storyline. But this was the return of the Joker. Uh, so, uh, you know, he had crippled Barbara Gordon, he had killed Jason Todd, but we were just now getting to that level. The Joker had taken it to the next level of a personal war with Batman. I, I, I think this is, a yeah, again, this is, this is a story that it's, it's kind of amazing that this story has gotten lost in the shuffle over the years, in my opinion. Yeah, I I mean, I think if the greatest Joker stories ever told had come out a year or two later, maybe this would have been fresh enough that people would have remembered it. Mm-hmm. Um, then again, people might have just gone with 450 and 451. And yeah, the, like those these three issues, as you said, all came out at the same time, in the same month. Um, this one was right between those two issues, um, which is why when I came back to this store a week after getting this one, um, it had both of those issues, and I was able to get them at the same time. And, the, and those are that's a, a great little story by Wolfman and Jim Aparo uh, in those two issues. And the framing device of here with Batman going to the psychic medium's office and, and like kind of talking to her, that framing device is like kind of takes place between those when he knows the Joker is back and he's looking for him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, well, we want to tell a Joker story, but we don't want to disrupt what's going on in, in Marv Wolfman's story, so they make this flashback. Um, the one, Yeah, the one conceit I will make to this one is, 
this isn't really a story so much as it's just like a little vignette. It's basically, it's one encounter. Um, it's basically just a, a longer fight scene. Uh, mm. One long fight scene between them, with kind of like you're right, like this psychological examination of their duality and what they mean to each other and their relationship. Um, and it's it's bookended by these little spots in her office and everything. But we don't really we don't see him doing like the, the detective work, and you know, there's not like multiple like scene locations and stuff like that. We don't get any like other characters and stuff like that. It's basically just one big action set piece for like the middle 17 pages or something like that uh and the beginning and the the end have like this these other little uh bookended parts in the psychic's office so yeah i like the look of cassandra the medium in this uh she's never actually named in, in the dialogue but we see her name on the the office and on page two uh, she's a woman of color with like long curly white hair. Uh, she doesn't look old, so she kind of gives me like a. She reminds me of like Storm wearing civilian clothes or something like yeah. that. Yeah, um, just because of the way she's drawn. However, part of me thinks it would have been cool if this could have been Madame Xanadu. Um, mm. I, I mean, I, I don't know if that would have changed the story or not. Madame Xanadu tended to kinda, like her presence tended to make. She wasn't necessarily active, but she kind of brought about some sort of serious change in the characters when they're sort Now, the difference is Madame Xanadu wasn't based in Gotham, so you would have had to make some kind of serious change to that. But I don't know. I, I think it would have been cool if he had stumbled into Madame Xanadu's shop for this little part. Yeah, it, well, she could have just appeared, you know, when he needed her to be there, you mm-hmm. know, because she's Madame Xanadu, so her shop just could have appeared in Gotham. Yeah, yeah, true, true. You know, just just enough to to get Batman, but the old lady happened to walk in before Batman got there. Or, <laughs> That's true. You know, so yeah, which the the old lady, the way Brayfogle draws her, she looks like the ventriloquist mom. Oh, uh, she, <laughs> it's Arnold Wesker's mother. <laughs> She does. Oh gosh, she does. Yeah, the, the glass and everything. This old lady is hilarious. Like the, how how desperate she is to find out that her doctor is attracted to her or something. Yeah, like that. and how yeah. how mad she is when she storms out. Yeah, she thinks this 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 dark uh, stranger that's coming. In, is it my doctor? You know, it's, that's <laughs> like yeah, it's like oh man, the, the doctor is probably this young, handsome, you know, thirty some year old or something too. I bet. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's funny. <laughs> um, on page three, like the, that bottom panel, I love. Of Batman's entrance as he's like kicking through like the sliding doors and the the like beaded curtains at, with like the the guy holding the switchblade kind of like surprised to see her and then the way it transitions with their very brief fight scene on page four and how long and and like laid out like Batman is and Brayfogle can do some wonky things with anatomy I I think there are more similarities between Norm Brayfogle and Todd McFarlane than I'm comfortable admitting, but I, I definitely think I, I maybe, maybe you were the one who put it where Brayfogle knows the anatomy well enough that he can deviate from it to make things look stylized and exaggerated for effect without right. it seeming like he's cheating because he doesn't have the command of the anatomy. Yeah, I, I think you can kind of put that, the, what he does, especially like you said in that fight scene where he's so elongated mm-hmm. when he's kicking that guy and then he's backhanding him. I, I, I put him in the category of a Jack Kirby or a Bruce Tim. They they understand how musculature works, anatomy works, but then they've redefined it for action. You know, right. basically they've, they've, they've come up with their own basic model sheet of the human anatomy 
uh, that works best in in action sequences. You know, <laughs> um, so I mean that's the way. I, it's not. It's it's not to mask a, an ineptitude at at <laughs> anatomy. It's mm-hmm. it's uh, it's done on purpose. So it kind of it, it trumps what uh, Todd was doing at the time. I think in, in right. feel and guys like that. Yeah, right. uh, yeah, and that's that's important to see at the time. I mean, I'm I'm more specifically looking at the Todd McFarlane stories that we covered from Batman Year Two, which I right. don't think were as good. By the time he was cruising on all cylinders on Spider Man, and then by the time he he created Spawn for Image. He knew what he was doing. I would not say he was a bad artist. His style wasn't necessarily to my taste, but I wouldn't say he was a bad artist covering for his deficiencies. I do right. think some of his earlier work, you can see, I, I, I would make that case in some of right. his earlier work. But Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I like the, the way, the, the page break, how Batman is ready to say goodbye to her, and he's like moving through the beaded curtains, and we just see that last panel of her just kind of waiting for him, looking through the curtains. And then there's a Free Sun ad on the original comic. Yeah. Uh, and then you change the page, and it's the same panel, but Batman is peeking his head back through, and he goes, Well, I'm looking for someone. <laughs> Yeah, the Capri Sun ad and then the Double Dragon ad where yeah. it looks like the two brothers are getting ready to kiss, uh, which is <laughs> which is like, uh, that's all kinds of wrong. They're brothers, you know. Uh, but uh, <laughs> oh God, There's a, a line in 30 Rock where it's like, keep your friends close and your enemies so close that you're almost kissing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. um, what did you What did you think of um, on, on page six, like the the sort of overlay of their silhouettes of Batman and Joker over top of each other with the outlines? Oh, I love that. Mm-hmm. I think that's just great. I mean, that would make a really cool that it, it would make a really cool T shirt. You know, there were there were some T shirts that come out in eighty nine. I think there was one that was like a split Batman Joker. And, you know, I know there's the playing card on the back of the Killing Joke, the original um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. format that's got like, you know, one side's Batman and one side's Joker, tops <laughs> Batman, you know, bombs Joker. Uh, but, yeah, I, I love that. I, I was like, is that a Sir print? It's like, well, no, not really, because it's got a black outline, so it's not exactly a Sir print. I guess it can kind of be the white of the Joker's face inside the black but yeah, I love that, and it and it repeats later, and it's because here Batman, is, of course, is very solemn. You can't see much of him, but the Joker's grinning. But later we'll see the reverse <laughs> of the it end, when the Joker's the re- unconscious and Batman Joker's is unconscious and Batman's smiling. Yeah, yeah, I, I, that's yeah, that's. I mean, oh god, Brayfogle was just so good. Yeah. I mean, he just. Uh, I mean, the energy he instantly brought to the Batman comics the minute he he walked on him is just. Uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think he gets enough credit for that. I mean, yeah. he just—he um, was just simply one of the best right. <laughs> that ever drew Batman. <laughs> I, I mean, the the next page when you see the Joker just like lifting his hand and like out of like his out of his jacket cuff, the gas just spraying out on the guard, and then this extreme close up of the guard's face as he like falls, slams onto the floor with that rictus grin, and like mm. the lines jutting down to it, like to sort show kind of like the the exaggeration like like how like intense this is as the joker is laughing and running up the stairs with his goons yeah it's like in the lines are like look at they're forcing you to look at it i mean that's <laughs> that's kind of funny it's like you know it's his stuff's very cinematic too it's like you know he's pointing you directly at what he wants to look at the page 
he doesn't get enough credit for the page layout, like because you know he's got these panels that you know they're not rectangles. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're they're going at you know they're just the the bottom is is uh, how do I say that? Uh, they're like almost like a parallelogram or something like that. <laughs> I don't know. It's early in the morning, guys. I, I don't have my words. But basically, the you know the the next panel that shows the totem pole that they're setting up the totem pole for later, that's like jutting up. Like, you know, it's, it's got this, uh, kind of, uh, tilted windmill worm's eye view shot of this totem pole, but it's like cutting into the panel up above of the, of the security guard that's been killed by the Joker with the grin. And so it's, it's, it's really just, it's super dynamic, but it's not so much that it's, just oh you're just trying to be clever there norm no it's everything's in service of the story of 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 the mood of the atmosphere uh or of the storytelling itself so to me it's that's when i like i don't like it when these artists just get you know we're talking about todd mcfarland and and i know on there's a page in infinity incorporated where he shows like like two characters are on the phone and and he takes up space by drawing like a phone in the round part of the receiver, like the characters are in a panel inside that. And so to me, that's a little much, you know, <laughs> but here this totally works. It's not overwrought for overwrought rottenness sake, I guess you would say. <laughs> yeah. The Joker and his goons, they are quick to violence. They're killing guards. They're beating up people. And the Joker is mocking this one guard for like laughing and everything. And just like, or for he's like quaking with fear. He's like shivering. You see the lines of his movement and, and like, oh god! Like the look on his face as the Joker is laughing at him, with his like eyes bulging and his like mouth turned down. I I recognize this right away. I mean, like the Joker was a violent homicidal killer in this story, but I don't know. Maybe it's just the age and and the like. I mean, he's not cutting his face off, and I it just I keep coming back to that. It's like my day. The Joker didn't have to do that to show you he was dangerous. I don't know. Maybe it's right. just, we we grow up and it's like you know they they need to do new things to attract new readers. I don't know. Yeah, well, I the I got that feeling. You know, the Grant and Brave Fogel both portray how uncomfortable it would be to have. Of course, it'd be uncomfortable for anybody a group of armed men to come into a room <laughs> yeah. you're at. But the fact that the Joker is just so unnerving. You know, I mean, this this poor guard. He's killed his friend and his coworker, and you know, and then the Joker. He says, ah, isn't that what your friend said? You know, so eloquent in you. Oh, no, no, no. And he just laughs. So it, it, it reminded me of when Heath Ledger's Joker comes into the party in The Dark Knight. Mm, yeah. uh, it, it, that, that whole how he, you know, not only was, oh, God, there's armed men in this room with guns. There's this nut, this right. insane clown that you don't know what he's going to do because he's so mercurial. You know, mm. he's going to is he going to laugh at you or is he going to is he going to stab you, shoot you? What's he going to do? You know, that's. That's what. That's why the Joker, like you said, doesn't have to cut his face off to be scary. I mean, it's <laughs> he just just because he's. If the Joker's in a room with you, you should be scared shitless. I mean, <laughs> yeah. basically, no matter who you are, whether you're the common man or Lex Luthor, even you know, you should be scared. You should, or, or even if you're not acting like you're scared, you should be scared. Right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, and page nine is evidence of that when he takes the funerary dish and that that second panel. Where the hat is is putting his face in shadows, his face is completely blacked out except for his teeth and his gums and his eyes and this one little wisp of green hair. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's such a cool one. He's, he's yeah, so was great at that. He, mm-hmm. I mean, he we t- pointed out how he did that with Robin. You know mm-hmm. that he he could like you know make the silhouette of Robin 
who else did that with Bravefogel? But Bravefogel, and yeah, so it, it's it totally works. I mean, other people might try to do that, but it's yeah, and he is so super. He's super super skinny, <laughs> and throwing the guy's head through the the window and everything. And that's when Batman wakes up, and Batman using what what he has there, just like these these artifacts, you know, starts throwing down, taking out the guys. Batman could give Bullseye, the Daredevil villain, a lesson in marksmanship from throwing objects. Yeah, oh yeah, I thought that too, and it's like, it's kind of weird. I I think that might be, you know, Grant maybe trying to, that may be the one place where he kind of overdoes the symbolism thing by having Batman defeat the Joker's goons with the symbols, you know. <laughs> Um, I, I don't think that was necessary. I think he could have just used some batarangs or, right. but you know, it, it, it made for a kind of a cool visual and, you know, Batman, Batman's like stabbing these guys hands, uh, with, uh, with knives, which is pretty brutal and something Batman probably wouldn't have done a few years before this in the comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so I thought, yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Uh, and then the totem pole, which you're right. I mean, they, they forecast that earlier all of the, these pages with him pushing the totem pole and Batman having to dive to like knock it out of the way so it didn't crush people and then him getting trapped uh, the change in color once the fire goes off uh, or well actually on page 13 we get another one of those things when the Joker's face is all blacked out and you see only the eyes and the teeth and mm-hmm. when he's like a firebomb and Batman's like don't do it Joker it's cr-, and he's like crazy oh yes I know but what else can you expect from a lunatic? And he throws the bomb down, mm-hmm. and you know, slamming the. Sh- uh, I just thought like these these pages were epic, and then the next pages with, you know, Batman. I mean, this is what Batman does. He has to dig down. He has to. He he has that moment. Will he give in to despair? And then he has to channel all of this energy. You know, this this isn't you know what Amazing Spider-Man thirty three. I think when you know <laughs> yeah. he to, when he's trapped under the all that wreckage and he's thinking about Aunt May and he has to lift that up. It's not that moment. But it's it's a, it's almost as close as you'll get from Batman having to lift this thing off of his leg. This whole bit reminded me of it made me wonder if this this was on the stands around the time they were developing Batman the animated series, and so it made me wonder because this reminds me of uh, the episode uh, uh, Never Fear. I think it's the first Scarecrow episode oh, when yeah. Bat- Batman famously says, "You know, I am vengeance. I am the knight." <laughs> I am Batman! Yes. And, and, I mean, he pretty much says that here because he says, I am the dweller in the darkness. I am the demon. I am the bat! You know, so, I mean, it's it, like, wow, that that's pretty much the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and that's like Kevin Conroy's, I mean, whenever they've got him on something, everybody makes him say that, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if that came from this, but it's it's a pretty close, you know, approximation. So, I, I don't know if somebody... I'm sure they had all the Batman comics laying around when they were working on the show. So, um, you know, especially current issues. So current. it, it could, could be. But, yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, it definitely feels like something that came from there. Yeah. Um, I love the coloring, like you said, though. Yeah. I, I always love it. Adrian Roy could, whenever she did, like, we talked about that when we were doing the uh, the Bar Grant run. Uh, mm-hmm. When something was on fire, she would go to these orange hues and it's really super effective. I, I mean, it 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 really just makes it feel like the entire building's on fire. Yeah. Uh, I, I I don't know. It's it's you know you can take your computer. And I'm sounding like an old man. Get off my lawn. But <laughs> I, to, to me, this is just as if not more effective than any computer coloring that you get nowadays. Yeah. So. Yeah. I love it. I love these pages. Uh, and then he he frees himself. He, he basically just hurls himself through the locked doors, and you see like the people running out. The last panel on sixteen 
um, the Mr. Star, the guy who runs the gallery, is slamming down a fire alarm on the street, like, 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 Okay, I, I I know that there used to be, like used to be like fire alarms outside and everything like call boxes or whatever like on this, but th- this feels like in 1990 was that still a thing? Would a building not have fire alarms inside? That had to be up to code. Yeah, I would imagine as soon as that fire started, the sprinkler system would have went off. I mean, it's know? a museum. Like they had. Yeah. Like, it's, it's, it's kind of... Well, I mean, maybe I guess maybe they might not have had a sprinkler system because maybe the sprinkler system could potentially ruin more artifacts than the fire might if it didn't spread so maybe I, I don't know but yeah you would think the fire alarm would go off even if a sprinkler system didn't go off yeah you know um so yeah that's that's a good question i i before we move on i forgot one thing i want to bring up the joker says something really kind of strange when batman's chasing him up the stairs after the the chandelier drops he says you rednecks never learn the joker always comes up trumps he called them rednecks. Where did that come from? <laughs> oh, that's a good point. I, I actually, I, I caught that when I was rereading this, and I forgot to put it in my notes. Yeah, I, I don't know. Now I, I looked it up. You know, obviously we know redneck usually means mm-hmm. it's a derogatory for, term for somebody, usually from the south, that's not very smart and not and has outmoded beliefs and right. you know so on. But it, it, you know, apparently, it originated in Scotland in the 17th century and was used to describe Presbyterians who once wore red um, scarf-like material around their necks, and that may have actually followed. Uh, then when they came to the United States and and then that combined with the fact that, you know, uh, farmers would work out with a hat on, but their neck would still get exposed to the sun. That's where redneck come from. But I don't know if that's Alan Grant sneaking in um, uh, a job at the American audience as if the Joker's British or or <laughs> I don't know what that is, but it's just really weird. It's like redneck when I read that, I, I, I did not. Maybe, like maybe he he heard the term and he just thought it just meant stupid or uneducated, and he was yeah. just kind of trying trying to be a put down, but didn't get the fact that there's like a a very specific regional connotation to it. Like right, yeah, yeah. Exactly. I'm thinking yeah. maybe, maybe he just thought it was another term for like a moron. Uh, right. He was just kind of like insulting the people there, but didn't realize it's like yeah, it's not it's not just <laughs> like there's there's more context to it than that. I'm not saying there can't be rednecks in New Jersey, but it's, you know, <laughs> geographically, it's probably not. Yeah, it's not. And as I'm from Kentucky, folks, so don't, you know, I hear it all the time. So, you know, it's coming from me. So don't get offended. I'm just this, saying. This is a charity event at a museum. So. Right. These are all upper crust type folks in Gotham City and you know, very, very cosmopolitan. So, <laughs> um, you know, as another Batman would say one day. Uh, I, I'm imagining Jeff Foxworth these bit. If you go to a black tie event in a museum and the Joker starts burning down your totem poles, you might be a redneck. Like, exactly. um, Jeff, you might want to take you might want to take another pass at that one. That didn't make sense. That's not going to make his calendar this year. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, sorry, uh, I didn't mean to derail it. I just had to bring that up because it was so weird. No, it's good. I forgot about that line, but. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Then we have the, these these three pages, which like were everything that Batman represented to me, like like with him running across the roofs, jumping from roof to roof, swinging, chasing, and he goes through this whole thing. European witches boil me in their brew, meaning bats. European witches boil me in their brew to help them fly. In Haiti, they drink my blood to give them power. 
Sicilians burn me or nail me, fluttering to their doors, to keep even greater foes at bay. In Ireland, I am simply death. I lead the Samoans into war. I am Chamalkin. And then he, like, swings down, and you see inside the Joker's car what the Joker just sees the silhouette, and then for a moment, right in that last panel, it looks like an actual bat, like the like a creature, an animal, not the Batman. And then this glorious double-page spread, I am the bat, as he just crashes through, he swings, and the cape goes on forever, and we get, like, the, the ghost image of a bat, like he's swinging out of its mouth like a bat out of hell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there you um, go. Like, his foot, like, hitting Joker in the face and then keep going and taking off the roof of the car. It's just... Oh, man. My favorite image. Yeah. If, if this, you... this, this, this this probably is my favorite Batman image of all time. Oh, wow. that's It's pretty... It's sweet. And if you're going to own any... I guess it would be two pages, but it would be a double-page spread. If you're going to own any artwork by Norm Brayfogle, this could possibly be it. Why you, mm-hmm. what, what you would want, you know? Uh, yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's just, uh, I mean, you know, and, and, and the age I was when this came out, I mean, I was just old enough. I was 15. So I was just old enough to, you know, want a little bit more psychological depth in my <laughs> comics. You know, I, yeah. I wanted them to be fleshed out a little bit more. I wanted, I, you know, I wanted everything to have a deeper meaning because I was deep, you know, I was 15, man. I knew, you know, I knew the score. I knew that, you know, my parents were flawed and, you know, that the, the teachers were all stupid and, you know, and, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't quite the shag level of, oh, superhero comics. I'm going to go read some Vertigo. You know, I wasn't that bad, but, you know, uh, but no, I, I wanted more depth, you know, so, so, I mean, He's not just a guy in a costume. No, he is the bad. He's the spirit of the bad. I mean, it was just and this these pages just nail it, you know. And plus, it doesn't hurt that a few years later, Kenner will release a Joker mobile that looks a lot like this. So that's cool. <laughs> 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 and they even crash into a statue that says La Chariot. Yeah. So it's another symbol, you know. So. <laughs> Uh, and then, yeah, that, then we have the, the reverse of that image of the, the, the Joker silhouette on top of Batman's. With, and you, as you're right, yeah, this time Batman is triumphant. He's smiling and the Joker's knocked out. It's not a complex story because, you know, it doesn't have many layers. There aren't multiple encounters. Like I said, it's basically one one action set piece, one chase that takes up the bulk of the story with these little bookended pieces inside the, the, the medium's office apartment thing. But, I mean... Again, as a kid with this being, you know, one of my very first comics, the first, like, you know, Batman, like, that wasn't, you know, The Dark Knight Returns or, or Arkham Asylum, where I, you know, I, I was, you know, devouring that art, but I wasn't reading every word, you know, I was skipping around and, and putting the pieces together, you know, from context. This one, it was simple enough, it was an easy-to-understand story that I read every word, and I just kept devouring it, and I loved the art. And it was, I mean, for that reason, it has always been one of my absolute favorite Batman stories, favorite issues. And the fact that it was my first, maybe it's like, I've been chasing the dragon. I've been trying to get to that high for 30 years, trying to feel the same way I felt reading this one. Oh, I could definitely see. I mean, this is a great first issue to buy. I mean, you know, I... I I envy you for, you know, being this being one of your first. Of course, one of the first Batman comic I remember buying was that uh, that Batman Spectacular. So oh. uh, that was pretty good, too, that had uh, Midnight, you know, Death at Midnight and, and three, three. So, yeah, yeah so uh, so so I, I came in pretty hot, too. But uh, so but no, this is a this is a great 
this is a great comic. It's and it's a but I could it, it does kind of set you up. The, unfortunately, they're not all this great, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, as we have discovered in the early days of Nightcast, uh, some of them aren't that preceded this by just a few years were far yeah. inferior to this, uh, in our yeah. opinions. But again, like, I mean, right after this, I, I read the, the 450 and 451 two-parter with the Joker and his return, mm-hmm. um, which was another really good one. I mean, that was still it wasn't it wasn't Jim uh, Jim Aparo at his best, but it was still Jim Aparo, so they still looked right. really good. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was a fun story. And then right after that, the next story after that two-parter was Dark Knight, Dark City Ooh. with um, was Peter Milligan writing that one and um, the Kieran uh, Dwyer. Kieran Dwyer, yeah, and the covers by Mike Mignola. Mm-hmm. Um and and God yeah that those are great story too so there there was yeah. definitely there was great material during this time that I was really really digging I was happy to be reading them back then so well you know and that one uh, that one's heavily into the symbolism of Batman yeah. too like yeah. because it I mean it even <laughs> offers up the notion that Batman is literally was created by the city to defend this this evil darkness that like. Mm-hmm. Like Gotham's cursed, basically, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like it's like wow, yeah. and you know, and 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 Denny O'Neill himself had written uh, Shaman in yeah. Legends of the Dark Knight just a year before this, so that was you know the whole deal with the uh, Batman gets the uh, the Inuit um, uh, bat mask and all that, you know, and he's he's young and he's training and and his to- he gets his bat totem and and uh, of course that is also covered in the man who falls that we did in secret origins the the coda episode right uh so yeah it, it's there was a lot of it was just in the air of, to 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 like really take a deeper look at the symbology of of batman and and what that meant and and even to delve into the supernatural at this time it was just there was just something it, i don't know if denny you know denny's um uh, interest in mysticism or something, you know, or or I, I don't know what that is. I don't I don't know if it was something, you know, because he comes from a more philosophical bent, um, uh, maybe a more psychological bent himself. Maybe that's as as the editor. Maybe that had something to do with it. But it was oh. definitely something in the air at the time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. We should do that. Dark Knight, Dark City. I don't think that. I mean, it's kind of strange, but. And it's pretty dark, so I mean, it kind of challenges some of the notions that we put forth. That ah, oh, we don't want our Batman this dark, <laughs> but that's pretty freaking. Bar- Batman has to perform a tracheotomy on a baby. Yes, he does. <laughs> yes, he does. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's like a freaking seven in a Batman comic almost, yeah. you know. So it's like, uh, and I, I kind of thought, you know, like I that that story just sort of like disappeared. It felt like you know just. After it was over, people forgot about it. Grant Morrison did actually come back to those elements during his run. It was mm. either it was either during his run or it was during the Return of Bruce Wayne story uh, miniseries. Um, but he came back to those whole ideas of like the colonial era Gothamites, you know, sort of summoning this demon and and what they begat to the city. So yeah, yeah. it's also it's also got uh, it also casts some uh, historical figures in not the best light too in that storyline, <laughs> which is interesting. Hmm. So. Yeah, we should we should cover that. It, I don't I don't I, I'm sure some of our podcasting friends have covered it, uh, but uh, Mike and Andy, back off. We're going to cover that. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say it's, it's a race between us and, and the overlooked who can get to this. We call it. We gave you Starlin. We're going to do that one. Okay. Right. 2021. We got. We're going to come back to Dark Knight, Dark City. So. 
There you go. <laughs> All right. Um, any final thoughts on Detective Six Seventeen before we go, or before? Oh we no, I, it was, it's a great comic. I loved hearing the story of of your first comic and how you. Uh, you know, it's it's funny because my mom used to bring home comics to me too. She would. Mm-hmm. Uh, she worked in a, she managed a Hallmark store mm-hmm. and she would, um, there was a Begley's drug, uh, store, uh, down the couple of stores down in the shopping, uh, strip mall that was there. And, and, uh, she would walk down there and pick up a few comics and bring them home to me. And they were all often ones I didn't get up the street at the drugstore where I usually got my stuff. So yeah, that was, that's always a treat. You never knew what your mom was going to bring in like <laughs> comic. Was. It's like, what you bring me mom? Yeah. I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, that, and that's another thing, not to get old man on the lawn, but that's that's another thing, man. When moms could just pick up comics for their kids and bring them home, it made a lot of fans. I'm just yeah. saying. Yeah. So yeah, the accessibility, yeah. you know, I know they've tried in the last few years getting comics at Walmarts mm-hmm. and stuff. So that's good, but we need more of that. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for like two years before this one came out, like I, I had gotten my first comics, which were G.I. Joe comics. Um, and kind of spread out between the next two years, I would get a handful, but they were always, they were given to me by my mom or my brother, or I had a cousin who worked in like a shopping mall right across from a comic store. So she knew mm. like so from time, like on Christmas, I think she got me a couple. Uh, so there were these things. And then like, we, like after the 89 movie came out, like we got a bunch of the, the trades and the hardcovers and got this, but this one was the one where I was like, okay, I know where you got this book. Now it actually occurred to me to think, I know the location where you got this comic and I could ride my bike there if I needed to. So this, this, this made me an active person who sought out comics and got them for myself. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Alrighty folks, we're going to take a quick promo break right now, but we will be back soon with another story. One might even consider it one of the greatest Joker stories ever told, at least maybe an editor or two thought so don't go away. It's Fade Out. Hosted by film fanatic Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, Fade Out will examine the final films of Hollywood's brightest lights, part of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Okay, we're back, and we're going to talk about Batman number 321, which was covered in March 1980, on sale December 6, 1979. On this hauntingly dramatic cover by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, Batman, Robin, Alfred, and Commissioner Gordon are writhing in agony, bound to burning stakes atop a cake in the image of the Joker's face. A banner up top reads, you are cordially invited to the Joker's birthday party. Below, the clown prince of crime fills the lower left-hand corner and announces, and you're all welcome to watch the fireworks. <laughs> what do you think of this one, Ryan? Uh, uh, it, it's Jose. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's, it's, it's an all-time great image. It's just, it's, it's. It's really good, just like the layout, the composition, the fact that they're in candles, and they, it, you, you almost don't even see the candles. It looks like they are the candles, like the fire is burning on them. Why? Uh, it's, it's, it's intense. It's a great image, and, and yeah, Joker right up front there. It's, yeah, oh, you have to buy this. You have to pick this up when you see it. It's, it's, that's great, and it's, it's Jose. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> right. Yeah, and you know, and it's, it's pretty intense. I mean, I, I bought this comic off the stands or had somebody buy it for me because I had just, I was just 
turning five. I, it, was, it was my birthday around the time this comic <laughs> came out. So I remember thinking, oh, is the Joker's birthday the same day as my birthday? That's weird. Uh, but, uh, I mean, ostensibly in the story, they're candles. But here it looks like they're literally just being burned at the stake yeah, yeah. Uh, on the cover. I mean, because it's – and they're on fire. I mean, <laughs> they look like maybe the stake's on fire. But either way, they're tied to it. So – these four characters that we know and love are on fire on the cover of this comic book. I mean, it, it's probably the most extreme thing I had ever seen in a comic up to that point, other than that panel of the orb from the Spider-Man treasury uh, <laughs> that Rob used for his you know profile picture during Halloween. It was like, nah, I, uh, so yeah. And I don't think Jose gets enough credit as one of the the great Joker artists, because his Joker nails the classic look, but he adds a level of dementia that I don't think a lot of artists had put in at this point. I mean, the Joker looks insane on this mm. cup. So, mm. oh. Yeah, I mean, going back to the, the Batman versus the Incredible Hulk treasury that you mentioned, I mean, the, like Jose drew him in that, and God, he looks so good throughout that book. Yeah, and he had drawn like an issue or so of the, the Joker's own series. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he, he knew him and of course he'd go on to draw all the style guide art right. that we saw, uh, in the eighties and, and forward. So yeah, it's, uh, it's just wonderful. Yeah. It's, it's iconic that cover, I think. Okay. Inside we have dreadful birthday, dear Joker. Len Wein was the writer, Walt Simonson and Dick Giordano, the artist, Glennis Wein was the colorist, Ben Oda, the letterer, and Paul Levitz was the editor. Commissioner Jim Gordon walks into Gotham Police Headquarters to find an envelope waiting for him. Inside is an invitation from the recently escaped Joker. Dear Gordy, you're cordially commanded to be present at the Joker's birthday party tomorrow evening at 9 p.m. Black tie optional, funny hats mandatory. RSVP, BYOB. Gordon and his men laugh at the Joker's request, but the laughter continues unnaturally afterwards, the result of laughing gas pumped into the building. The crime clown himself makes a dramatic entrance, and outside, the Batman, answering the summons of the bat signal, notices the sound of laughter and the outrageous Joker-mobile parked on the curb. Popping in his rebreather, the Cape Crusader bursts through a window and lays into the Joker's goons, but the madman abducts Gordon and escapes in his signature ride. The police officers inform Batman that Gordon is the second person the Joker has nabbed today. Earlier, in New Carthage, Batman's partner, Robin, stopped to aid a damsel with a flat tire, only to find the tire made of super sticky taffy and the damsel to be a knave in disguise, the Joker. Shortly thereafter, at the Wayne Foundation building, Alfred entertains the visiting Selina Kyle, who is waiting for the absent Bruce Wayne. The Foundation's second-in-command, Lucius Fox, stops by to drop off paperwork, but all three get greeted by an explosion that takes out one of the penthouse walls. The Joker and his men emerge from his floating hot air balloon, and after taking out a fighting mad Selina Kyle, abduct Alfred and take off. Sometime later, Selina awakens to the sight of the Batman, who already knows who and what happened here. Elsewhere, in the Joker's Ha Hacienda, the clown prince of crime gloats to his captive audience. He informs Robin and his multitude of fellow hostages that it is his birthday, and he'll celebrate by eliminating his enemies while Gotham watches. When the Joker notices one of his gang not quite getting his humor, he pulls a gun on him. Sidney is at first horrified, then relieved when Joker pulls the trigger, only to reveal a flag with BANG, YOU'RE DEAD written on it. The flag proves prophetic when the gun fires once more, lodging the rod into Sidney's skull. 
Robin questions how the Joker can find an audience willing to watch mass murder, but the Ace of Knaves is ahead of the teen wonder. He has placed an ad in the Gotham Gazette announcing the Harlequin Baking Company proudly invites all of Gotham City to sample its wares tomorrow at 9 p.m. at the Seaside Coliseum. As expected, throngs of Gothamites are enticed by the notion of anything free, but the Batman observes that the Harlequin Baking Company doesn't exist. Now he knows where the Joker will hold his birthday bash. A record crowd swarms the Seaside Coliseum, but instead of pastries, the anxious crowd is met with gas, immobilizing them and forcing them to stare at the stage. The lights go out and then back up to reveal the thin, spotlighted figure of the Joker, who announces his birthday celebration in style. He has brought refreshments in the form of a giant cake with all his hostages strapped to explosive candles. He points to the detonator that will ignite the candles and snuff out the lives of his captured enemies. As expected, from out of the shadows steps the Batman. The Joker tells the masked manhunter he'll let the hostages go if Batman will surrender. Batman reluctantly agrees and allows the Joker to tie him to the central candle on the highest tier of the cake over Robin's protest. The teen wonder is of course right. The Joker has no plans to honor their deal, but the Batman is no fool. He presses a button on his candle and it flies skyward. Unflinchingly, the Joker responds by hitting the detonator as Batman frees himself from his bonds. He recalls how he came to the Coliseum early and rigged the candles' incendiary jets into a makeshift rocket. Despite his escape, the Joker gloats his friends will burn. As he floats downward, the Dark Knight throws a series of batarangs that cut each of the wicks on the nearly burning candles. Another batarang cuts his partner free, and Robin joins his mentor in stopping the Joker's armed goons. But the Harlequin of Hate is on the run. He jumps into a speedboat at the nearby pier and launches it. But Batman throws a rope onto the engine and water skis behind him until he is able to pull himself into the vessel. The two battle aboard, and after the Joker misses with his acid-squirting flower, they wrestle as the boat heads for the coastal shoals. Batman tries to reason with the madman, but instead grabs a hold of the Joker's fake hand falling into the harbor. The amused clown cackles at his victory as the boat crashes into the rocks and explodes. Gordon asks Batman if he thinks the Joker is really gone this time, and the Cal Crusader responds, Believe me, Commissioner, I'd like to think so, but in my heart of hearts, I doubt it. So what did you think of this one? Whew. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's definitely a worthy entry into the greatest Joker stories ever told, which is where I, I first read it. I, I think I've mentioned before, I don't know what happened to my copy of that. I used to have it, and I don't anymore. Uh, but now I have this in the, the Tales of the Batman Len Wein collection. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a it's a fun story. It's an enjoyable story. When you have to podcast about something, you obviously hold it to greater degrees of scrutiny. This has been the bane of any podcaster uh, that we talk about a lot of times because when you really have to hold a magnifying glass to something, sometimes it's like, eh. And, and there are definitely elements of the story that kind of like make me scratch my head or go, no, that's, that, no, that's kind of dumb. However... Regardless of any minor flaws or quibbles with this story, I don't think anybody would disagree that the last two pages of this story are worth the price of the whole thing. Uh, and the reason that I, I think probably the reason that people remember this story, that that climactic battle, the setting on the speedboat, the way it plays out every little beat with the fake hand, the explosion, Batman's last line, which I think has been... I was it's feel I'm sure I've heard that like either on an animated series or something else where Batman has kind of like repeated that thing. I wish he I wish I could say that he was dead, but in my heart of hearts I doubt it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just yeah I mean like this I I remember those last two pages like they were like imprinted in my mind from reading them at a younger age, and I've I've never forgotten those two pages. So 
Right. Yeah. yeah. And this this kind of does the uh, kill uh, the uh, laughing fish one better because yeah. the Joker yes. actually <laughs> he actually causes his own. I mean, the Joker could jump out of the the boat, but he's just so wrapped up in in mm-hmm. pulling that prank on Batman that he's just cackling about yeah. it. You know, which I, which I, I think yeah. I think that's one of the comments that we got for last <laughs> after the last episode, which I think was part partly the inspire inspiration to do this story now and to pair it with one the one that I just covered. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I think you're right, though. I think it's a classic, but upon examining it for the show, there's not as much to it as you would think, because it's 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 only 18 pages long, because this was after the DC implosion a few years before where the pages were cut. It's not nearly as dense as the Joker's five way revenge or the laughing fish. It, it's all very on the surface. Yeah. And, and it's a very fast read, but I don't think that takes away from its entertainment value right. at all. Uh, it's it's a fun, solid Joker story with great art. So yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I was gonna, I was going to ask, does this look more like a Walt Simonson comic or a Dick Giordano comic to you? It's it's definitely. I, I think you can see some of the energy of Simonson, but yeah, it's definitely. Yeah, it, it looks like Simonson did the layouts and and Giordano did the finishes to me. That's what it looks like. Yeah, yeah, yeah I was going to say yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's definitely. I was, it's, I was surprised to see Walt Simonson's name. I'd forgotten that. I, I was surprised to see him on the on the titles. Yeah, I mean, and, and he inked uh, Simonson a few times during this period, and kind of yeah, they definitely kind of water down the the Simonson we know from Thor, for instance, you know, <laughs> uh, and X Factor and things like that. So yeah, I, definitely. So yeah, I think Glenn Ween. I, I do like that. Uh, as the story opens, he's trying to solidify Gotham's layout. He tells us the police headquarters is at the junction of an area called Five Points. So yeah. he's trying to like actually say, okay, this, the, you know, I think Paul Levitz was uh, trying to coordinate stuff, uh, things between the titles at this point. Uh, and I've seen interviews with him that says he was. And in fact, he even rewrote some of Bob Haney's, uh, had people come in and rewrite some of Bob Haney's scripts, part of them, uh, to bring them in line uh, with what was going on in the Batman books. But uh, yeah, so I think it's cool that they're, you know, establishing, you know, there's different areas of Gotham. And I, I, I like that. I think that's cool. Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, yeah. I I love the Joker's entrance. How you know they're just kind of they're reading the card. Which first of all, the 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 invitation card is really funny. Um, and then they they're kind of like laughing and everything. And then they boil that. It's like oh god, no, it was poisonous. They're all bringing out into the Joker fits. We see that page with or the panel with the four cops barreling over like belly laugh with the ha ha's in the background. And the Joker's just entrance is like frankly fun secrets. It's not that funny. I just right yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask you, I have to ask you this. On page two, panel two, when Gordon's opening that envelope, that looks like a Gene Colan drawing. Hey, the, sh- the shadowing? Yes, it does. Like, it's like that, that heavy shadowing and everything, like with like the lines and everything. And even just kind of like the shape of Gordon's face. Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, because he'll draw Batman, obviously, in a few years uh, from this. Yeah. And I mean, this if you pop this in a Batman comic a few years from now that Colan drew, I would never... I would never say, oh, that's not him. I'd say, oh, yeah, that's him. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> <So> <laughs> yeah I think that's cool. I, I know this is the first time uh, I saw the Joker mobile, um, and, <laughs> and I was instantly in love. I mean, this one looks – I mean, the, this version of the Joker mobile anyway, because I've seen the probably the one that they used on the Adam West series, but 66 series. But this one looks pretty much exactly like the one Dick Sprang uh, designed in the 50s. But Joker actually had a similar car and Batman number 37, October, November 1946, which was designed by Jerry Robinson. 
And I always kind of thought that that shape of the Joker mobile actually influenced the 1950 Batmobile that, you know, with the big bubble dome and the huge fin. And because mm-hmm. this one, this Joker mobile looks like that. But this Joker mobile kind of sort of existed before that. So I think it's kind of I always, I always thought, you know, I mean, yeah, it, does it make any sense that he'd be driving around in this? To, yeah, obviously, he could. But the Joker is so vain that it, it does right. make sense. So. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mean, it's very toyetic. I mean, I'm, I, like it's, it'd be a nice vehicle for merchandise. I, I've always kind of had the opposite reaction. I don't care if the Batmobile gets kind of crazy and wonky and really exaggerated. Um, and, and maybe it just kind of goes back to the, the era of when I discovered. I prefer the Joker to just kind of have like an old Rolls Royce sort of vintage looking car or something like that, like a town car or something, uh, rather yeah. than one of these like tricked out gimmicky vehicles. If I was a toy, if I was collecting the, the toys, you know, in the 1970s or, or 80s or something, then yeah, maybe I would have wanted that Joker mobile. <laughs> Yeah, it's kind of weird because in the the comics that came with the superpowers, there was a Joker mobile that the Joker was shown driving, and they never made a toy of it. Huh. Uh, it's not this one, but uh, it was kind of kind of strange that they never got around to it. Uh, we've been talking about animated series connections. When when Batman enters, the Joker's line is very similar uh, to Mark Hamill's line in in Old Wounds because the Joker says. In the comics, he says, ah, the Batman, what an expected surprise, and what a waste of a perfectly good window. <laughs> Couldn't you have used the door? You know? So, yeah. <laughs> it's like the line when he says, nice entrance. You, you, either either you've never heard of a door, or you're just like pulling glass out of your shorts. You know? Yeah. So, <laughs> I just love that line. I always bring it up on here, but I just, when I first heard that, I like literally laughed out loud. It's just kind mm-hmm. of great. So, uh, I do think it's funny. One of the Joker's goons says, Lord, he's as crazy as the boss when Batman's tossed him around. So <laughs> is this an early example of brutal Batman? <laughs> Possibly. Um, yeah. It almost, it almost kind of, I don't know. It almost feels like there's a line of dialogue or something missing there, but I don't know. He's, you know, lifting up, a, like, you know, tossing him and then kicking him. Those, those definitely seem like Walt Simonson, like he's definitely taking the lead on these, you know. Yeah, I think I think the yeah the like I said the the layout and the the energy and not that you know I mean I love Dick Giordano's artwork but his stuff definitely was wasn't he didn't he didn't push the the camera and right, right. and the the extreme perspectives and things the way Simonson did so uh, yeah it's uh, but yeah it, it shines through in, in in places like that yeah um, so then we get to uh, we get to the flashback that shows Robin you know Robin is. Uh, stops to help a lady with a flat tire is that the best use of your time robin i mean <laughs> she wasn't in any actual danger i mean you could have just like you know on your radio phone that into the police or something you know i mean on your you that's, know, I'm sure you got, that's yeah. not my problem with this scene okay, okay what's your problem the, the, what's your problem with the scene that the lady is actually joker in disguise <laughs> And it's, with that it's, long chin under that yeah mask. yeah the joker's like freakishly disproportionate like weirded face like it with the, his crazy chin and cheekbones and everything and he's actually just he's wearing god like these these flesh masks that apparently can fool the world's greatest detectives like he, he rips it off and it's the joker and it's like okay the fact that she's wearing like a fur coat the fact that in like the first panel she's not wearing pants or anything like that and she's got her bare legs it's like 
okay, like maybe maybe if this had been a full 21 or 22 pages or something, this scene could have been extended and like she's a woman working for the Joker and, you know, Robin comes to help and like the Joker pops out of the trunk and knocks him out or something. But the fact that it's just the woman is the Joker disguised is like, really? Like it would be like, like the fact that it's it's not just a like him disguising himself as a woman, but she appears to be a beautiful, classy woman, and you can see all of her face. But no, uh, <laughs> ah, these flesh masks are going to be the death of me in the, these comics. I, <laughs> it's I know the same it's, kind of mask that I, Batman would have his ears like exactly, under. exactly. It's like when Batman pulls one of those masks. It's like how are you wearing the cowl underneath that? It's like, I know Jelly, Jelly Jones Batman pulls a flesh mask off oh, those ears. <laughs> Bernie Wrightson. <laughs> I know, I know. It's comics. It's part of the language, the medium of comics. You just accept those things, but it's one. Of the, it's like, don't draw attention to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they just didn't think about things like that back then. They just like it's 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 literally part. Like you said, it's part of the it's part of the language of comics that people yeah. just can wear these these fake disguises. And yeah, I mean, it's it kind of reminds me now. We keep going back to animated series of that. Is it in the? Might be in the world's finest uh, Superman crossover where the Joker it shows his leg like he's trying to uh, you know get uh, somebody to pick him up is like uh, what's that that one the it happened one night or whatever the, with uh, Clark Gable and I can't think of the I think it's the it's the actress from the Thin Man movies right it's um, I think so I can't, yeah uh... I can't I think think of her name off the top of my head but she like you know she actually raises her her skirt to show her leg you know for somebody to come by and stop you know pick up a hitchhiker and so it shows the Joker doing that so it, it, it makes me think of that but here the Joker's like. In drag, you know, the Joker's <laughs> dressed as a woman. And, and then the super sticky, the sticky taffy tire, you know, it's like, okay, well, Robin, you know, okay, your hands are stuck to the tire, but, you know, you've got a heavy tire in your hand. <laughs> Use the weapon. shit out of him with it, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, it's just like, yeah. you're, you're smart and you're very athletic and strong. Knock the hell out of this skinny dude with it, you know? I mean, it's... <laughs> Oh, uh, but yeah, I, you know, I was just happy at this time. I mentioned this before. It was always a treat at this, in this period when Robin would actually show up in a Batman story, you know, because I was buying, uh, I actually, I started buying detective when it became a dollar comic regularly. And, you know, Robin had a feature cause it had been in Batman family. They basically merged the two books. Right. Uh, but so, you know, you get Robin solo stories there and you saw him with them in the super friends comics that Rob's covering. I'm for all mankind, but to see them together in an actual Batman or detective comic was a treat uh, at the time. It's like usually he's on college break, so Robin's in here. Well, here he doesn't even have to be on college break. He's in New Carthage, which is where Hudson University was. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so I thought that was uh, so. Apparently, the Joker knows Robin's hanging out in New Carthage, so it wouldn't take much to figure out hmm, who else from Gotham's going to uh, Hudson University, <laughs> New Carthage. Which we'll get to that in a moment. Something else there, but. So we get to the Wayne Foundation penthouse, and this is when Lynn Wein was introducing Selena Kyle as Bruce's new love interest. And this was right after Englehart had introduced and then taken away Silver St. Cloud. Mm. Um, so, you know, in the detective comics that follow, uh, that introduce Clayface 3, that Wein wrote and Marshall Rogers drew, um, he introduces, Selena shows up in that. And, uh, and then Wein moves over to the Batman book. And uh, because, again, Detective merges with Batman family, you know, then she is set up as the uh, as a love interest. And in this Batman run, he also introduced the character of Lucius Fox. And obviously, Chris Nolan did great things with Lucius Fox via Morgan Freeman. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So yeah, he definitely uh, it, that that's a character that kind of almost become a footnote, but uh, saved from obscurity thanks to those films. So, I mean, also, and uh, the animated series too used him. He was in like he was in. Actually, I think his first appearance was in the Clayface episode, which aired during the first week. Yeah, he was in a handful of yeah. he was in a handful of episodes. Yeah, on there, and he was uh, um, uh, that was uh, oh, it was the guy that played Admiral Cartwright in uh, the Star Trek films, and he was in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. I can't. Yeah. Uh, what's I can't think of the actor's name. That's awful, but good actor. Yeah. 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 Um, my so my one thing is okay. It's nice to see him, but when I was reading this again, I was like, hang on, wait. Bruce invited Lucius Fox to come over that night to talk about these things. Like, doesn't Bruce know he'll be on patrol and everything? Like, why would he? And that made me think. I was like, okay, this is a setup. Joker wants him there because Joker's going to capture them all. I was like, well, wait, no, he doesn't. He only captures uh, like uh, Alfred. We think. I was like, so why is Lucius in this story? <laughs> like, what? Did, why did he need to be there? It didn't really didn't make sense that he's there for like Batman to invite him there, and then it, it's it's inconsequential unless he is captured and we just never see it. No, I, I think it's one of those. Uh, I think Michael Bailey calls it all uh, subplots accounted for. They had uh, subplots with Lucius going on, so they didn't want to drop him for an issue, so he shows up in the scene. Basically, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that's what that that amounts to. Uh, I, I do like the fact that uh, Alfred hears footsteps and he on the roof and he thinks that it's Batman and he's going to have to cover for him. That's that's a right. nice little aside that you know this is part of Alfred's job. Right. Uh, so that that's cool and it's also cool when the you know they break in and Selena she takes out uh, some of the the Joker's men and I you know it, the, the the discussion between her and the Joker. Uh, is is nice because he apologizes if he's interrupting a caper that she's got going on, uh, which which I think's nice. It, 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 <laughs> you know, it's like it's like this. You know, oh, it, well, I'm sorry, I violated the villain code. You know, I didn't realize this was your <laughs> this was your gig. I'm you know sorry about that. Um, but uh, he presents her with flowers, which conceal a boxing glove, which knocks her out mm-hmm. uh, because of course it does. Because along with the skin masks. DC loved boxing gloves back in the Silver and Bronze Age because you had boxing glove arrows. You had giant boxing gloves made with Green Lantern rings. They loved boxing gloves. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Muhammad Ali crossover. I mean, that's, comics, that's comics are all about violence, and boxing glove is a symbol of, box, of, of fighting and violence that's not lethal. So it's just – I mean, I get it. <laughs> just, right, but, yeah. Now, now here's the question, and you brought this up, kind of. Why did he take Alfred? The one, I, I, <laughs> so that was going to lead me to my whole thing about Joker's plan, and, and uh, apparently he's got like eight or nine hostages. But mm-hmm. and he's saying, you know, I'm I'm targeting all of these people who like for revenge who have been my enemies over the years. We don't know anything about the history between Joker and Alfred from this issue. No. Like, unless there is a previous issue where Alfred and his civilian identity somehow thwarted Joker's plan, he has no reason to target Alfred unless he specifically wants to target Bruce Wayne and or Batman. And that suggests that he knows exactly who Batman is underneath the cape and cowl. Um, which is why, like, I kind of thought that, and that's why, like, in the first attack, I was like, is he targeting Selina, Lucius, and Alfred, as well as Robin and Gordon? Like, if he's going after all of Batman's supporting characters, that would be pretty, A, pretty cool, but it would also confirm he knows who he's dealing with. Uh, and, and Batman, and Bruce would have to conclude that Joker knows the truth, too. 
but instead he only gets Alfred. He's also got Rob and Commissioner. Okay, those make sense. But all these other people who we never know their names of and who don't really matter. And I, so this was kind of like one of these problems where he's got all of these hostages, but if they're not specifically connected to one thing, I don't know if we need that many. Like, I, I don't know right. if having nine hostages and we only care about three of them, I don't think that's any better than if he had just had one or two. If he only had Commissioner Gordon, if he only had Robin tied to the candle or something like that, I still think Batman would have done the same thing and it would have played out the same way. And the threat might have been stronger because it wasn't spread out amongst a whole lot of people that we don't know or care about. Right, it would have been more personal. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, I, I do have I do have a few thoughts on that. I did do I, I got to thinking, you know, okay, why Alfred? Alfred was armchair detective back in the day mm-hmm. in the in the golden age. He had his own series of stories occasionally. Um, but uh, you know, had he ever had a actual physical running with the Joker? And then I remembered one of my earliest comics that I remember buying. Or having bought for me was uh, the very first issue of the Brave and the Bold I ever owned was number one forty one, May June nineteen seventy eight. It guest starred Black Canary actually. I yeah I know that issue yeah. Yeah, and it featured the Joker. He poisons Alfred with a chemical explosive, and then Batman disguises himself as Alfred when he apprehends the Joker at the end. So that this and it was edited by Paul Levitz. He was he was the editor of that at the time, so he may that may be the reason he abducted Alfred. But we needed a footnote. We yeah, needed a yeah. you know Alfred crossed uh, the Joker in Brave the Bold number one forty one. That that's what we needed, or we needed a panel. We just needed like a couple little panels where Joker points out who all these people are. Why I abducted you? You know, you were on the jury that convicted me. You did this. You did that. There was a Mad Hatter story that was adapted into the '66 series where the Mad Hatter is kidnapping all the jurors that that had uh, are taking all their hats uh, that had prosecuted him. You know, that had yeah. that had convicted yeah, yeah, yeah. him. Sorry, had convicted him. And uh, so, you know, and he and they detail which everyone they all, you know, that's why he's after him. Uh, that's what we needed. We needed we needed that, you know, like you said, either either tell us who they are or let's just keep it to a small number. I think. Yeah. What if would have probably worked. But, yeah, the whole Alfred thing, it does make you think, OK, does he know that Bruce Wayne's Batman? And I don't think that was that's a heavily hinted at, I think, now in the comics. And they may have just even come out and said he knows at this point. I don't keep up. And maybe one of the three Jokers knows. I don't know. Uh, I don't. I don't keep up anymore. But but yeah, it does make you think that. And I think it would actually work better if he taken Selena. You know, because mm-hmm. it could have been. You know, you crossed me in one of our previous team ups. Where you you know because I mean I don't know if in the comics they had ever really. Well, I guess that storyline that they had where they had the trial of who killed Batman. You know, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That uh, David B. rewrote a few years prior to this. Uh, you know, they all the villains, you know, uh, show up and, and Rachel Gould's the judge and Two Face is the attorney and they all give testimony. I killed Batman. No, I killed Batman. And, you know, they could have, you know, it, it could have been from that. Uh, it could have, you know, a call back to the, the, the TV show where I know that there was episodes where Joker teamed up and, and slash clashed with the Eartha Kitt's Catwoman. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, it could have been something like that. I think it would have made more sense for him to abduct Selena. And uh, then, then you know, then also you could have had her get freed too, and then she whoops some rear end of Joker goons at the end with Batman and Robin, you yeah, know, because yep, yep. obviously she knows how to fight. Right. Um, 
But no, Alfred's just a weird. It's just strange, and it's just strange that that they didn't uh, that they didn't give a call out. But that's but yeah, we I think we've covered that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now the Joker kills off an unamused employee, and that is straight out of the Laughing Fish. Yes. I mean, we just saw him in, in our coverage shove one of his guys into an oncoming dump truck. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I gotta say, the bang flag gimmick is great. And again, the animated guys take note of this because Bruce Tim and company will reuse it in Batman Beyond: Return of the Joker. Yep, yep. So, um, in, in a scene that's cut uh, from the, <laughs> the they the toned down version of the film that was originally released. <laughs> we know, we know also did it in the uh, aforementioned uh, Batman versus the Hulk Treasury story. He killed off one of his own goons too. You're right. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, but yeah, no, I. This is another one. This, along with the the finale, I remember this gag. You know, reading this in that the greatest Joker stories collection and firing the gun at Spang, you're dead. I was like, oh, whoo, whoo, that was close. He, he really had me fooled there. And then it goes off and it's a spear right through the guy's head. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah and I mean, they, the way they show it is the guy's head's turned, and you don't, of course, see the blood or where it's in his head, but you see the the, the, the rod of the flag sticking out, yep. and you know it's like right in the center of his skull. Yep. Oh. And, and, and Robin's really just, you know, I mean, he says, you're out of your mind, Joker, but he's not like, you know, I, he's taking it pretty calm considering he just saw a man, you know, murdered in front of him. But, of course, you know, how long has he been robbing? He's seen some shit by the <laughs> right, <I> <laughs> But he says, yeah, you're out of your mind. He says, gloriously so. Isn't it wonderful? I just, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, now, the when we get to the Coliseum, that is very Simonson because it looks like it's out of Asgard. <laughs> I mean, it's it's got these spotlights shooting straight up. I mean, you're just waiting for Odin to come, you know, striding out with his cape and all of his armor. And it's... It's very yeah. I mean, it's yeah. It, it's a little bit of that I also get some of the um, the mask of the phantasm, um, like Gotham. Like, welcome to the Gotham of the future. The, oh yeah, yeah. Whole, uh, the um, exit, the exhibit of the you know the whatever the the neo deco thing. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It does look like that. Which the Joker used as his headquarters yeah, yeah, in that yeah. in that movie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, no, it definitely yeah. It looks like the Golden City. I can imagine the the, the Rainbow Bridge coming out of that. that yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Joker gassing an entire live audience is, of course, a big chunk of his shtick in The Dark Knight Returns, too. So, mm. Mm. so mm. yeah, uh, yeah, <laughs> influential, perhaps. Uh, so, what did you think of the Joker's cake in in the comic? It's a little much. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's uh, you know I, I, I don't I, know I, I don't know if a cake needs to be bigger than an Abrams tank, but it's definitely <laughs> it's um, got more firepower than yeah, it does. I was like, this, this looks like a GI Joe vehicle from 1987. Yeah, <laughs> it does look like it. It's the Terror Drone. Yeah, you can yeah. fire all of these candles like rockets. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, <laughs> My dear Cobra Commander, I brought you a cake. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who frosted it's, that thing? I don't... Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Now, you know, if this had come out 20 years later, Harley would be inside the cake. You know, oh, she'd pop, yeah. Okay. Yeah. She'd, she'd pop out of the cake. She could sing, you know, happy birthday to it's you, like the happy cake. anniversary, yeah. the, you know, the, <laughs> the animated series. Uh, so, yeah, I it's I, I, I like this cake, but I, I do say I also like 
uh, Garcia Lopez, praise be his name, uh, his um, his take on the cover where it's the Joker's face. But this this works better on the inside of the comic because you see the the different tiers and the big Joker face and. There's one big candle up top with nobody tied to it. Hmm, I wonder who that's for, right? So, <laughs> yeah. 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 So I, I do like that, uh, That uh, you know, uh, Joker calls Robin a party poop. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah. that's fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the- <laughs> I always thought when, when, Batman, when Batman steps out of the shadows, I always thought it was weird that Simonson drew his legs, just his legs, when he steps out of the shadows. Is that weird, or is it just me? I, I mean, I just like if a light is coming in at an angle, that's the first thing that the light hits as he's walking. I don't know. I mean, it makes sense, but it's just not very dramatic. You know, it's like no. Oh, here's, here's Batman's legs. I mean, there's a. I mean, the panel of the next panel of Batman standing there, kind of looking down at the Joker disapprovingly. That that's a cool image of Batman. Mm-hmm. So maybe didn't want to take away from that and the 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 Joker face up in. Up in the panel, you're like basically looking up the Joker's nose. Did, did Gil Kane draw this? Uh, <laughs> you're looking up his nostrils, but I, I mean, it's it it works. But uh, yeah, it's yeah. it's just kind of strange. Yeah. So, so I'm I'm guessing this is another thing you might have a problem with. What do you think about Batman MacGyvering his uh, candle into a rocket? <sighs> <laughs> so, as a dramatic flourish, I mean you. You read comics for a certain reason, and you love it. Batman is hurled up into the heavens on this rocket candle sent by the Joker's cake, and he has to untie himself like Houdini and swing down, glide down on his cape while throwing batarangs that at the last minute save his friends and his partners and, and save the hostages. And it's an awesome action set piece. But you're also thinking, hang on, wait a minute, I call BS. Batman anticipated the Joker's plot. He got there in advance and jury-rigged to make the flaming candle a rocket so that he could use it to escape. He sabotaged that, but he did not also jury-rig any kind of thing that would save his friends and, and Robin and Gordon and, and like the, the other hostages. He had to leave that part to chance that he would have enough time to escape. It's like, What? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if he was skulking around in the shadows, why not just, like, take out his goons one by one until he's down to the Joker and take him out? You know, I mean, yeah, it. if you think about it too hard, it kind of does fall apart because it's, you know, with the Joker, I mean, you never know. Is he going to is he going to gas the audience and kill him? Is he going to kill a few people in the audience? Is he going to kill a few of the hostages while you're waiting for, you know, the rocket thing to go off? It's like. Oh, he just killed that guy, but I really worked hard on that rocket. Uh, I'll just wait. You know, it's like, yeah, you know, it's, you know. I mean, it, it definitely it works. Again, it's one of those things I never even thought about it before I sat down to do a podcast. Damn you, podcasting! Uh, you know, it, 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 I never thought about the kind of. Wait a minute, he was there long enough to turn a candle, a giant candle, into a rocket. Wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> what else could he have done with his time? You know? <laughs> yeah, like, 
here's an idea. Go free Robin. Yeah. He, well, well, yeah, he says, I couldn't risk trying to free Robin and the others while they were under the Joker's guns, but I still got here early enough to rig my candles incendiary jets, turning the whole thing into a makeshift rocket. It was risky, but when you're up against the Joker, you don't have much of a choice. It's like, mm, I find several... No, I'm going to challenge you, Batman. You had several other options that didn't involve turning it into a rocket. Like, if you could, if you could do that, you could have rigged it so that the candles just didn't burn and they were never in danger. You could have... Uh. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, it's, you know, maybe Batman, you know, we're talking about the, the masks, maybe Batman put on a disguise and showed up, yeah, I'm a, I'm a giant candle repair man, I'm here to see about that giant candle, you know, yeah. and the guys were like, uh, there's something wrong with the candle. Yeah, yeah, somebody called me about this candle. Look, I don't know who called me, all I know is I gotta <laughs> fix this giant candle, all right? I gotta get back to the office let me see the giant candle. And he's over there, you know, in disguise, working on the candle. And they're like, well, who's that guy? Oh, he's working on the giant candle. Oh, yeah. I, I don't, I don't. <laughs> it's, that, that's like, the scene we're missing. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, this almost, like, and I don't think it was, but like this, this would have made a little bit, this could have been explained if this story was put together, like, Marvel style. Like, 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 if Simonson was just like, this would be a fun ending and everything, like a climax, and he just turned it to a rocket, and then Len Wein got the pages and had to, like, script this. I was like, what, wait, what, what the hell am I supposed to do with this? <laughs> it's, like, okay. it's very possible that it was done Marvel style, because I think that's one thing that Marshall Rogers didn't like about working with Len Wein was that he did work Marvel style. Oh, he gave him the plots and then. Yeah, and, and then, he liked the full scripts that Steve Englehart had given him because you know he was leaving town, so he yeah, gave so him maybe. full. So yeah, so this could you could be right. I mean, maybe Simonson just went, "Ooh, I want to draw Batman strapped to a rocket." You know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I mean, it, as far as a big fun climax, it 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 works. Yeah. You know, it's all all criticism and and navel gazing aside, it works. And I love the you know the fact that. Batman is the expert marksman. We we saw that in that previous story we just <laughs> <Yeah>. covered. <laughs> I mean, he throws several, and the panel where he throws the batarangs is is great. Uh, although it does look like he's actually pulling them out of one of the capsules on his belt, which I'm like, oh <laughs> no, that that can't. There's actually a Justice League comic where Batman, and it was drawn by George Perez. It shows him pre grapple gun firing his bat rope and battering from one of the capsules. And I'm like, okay, even as a kid, I'm like, how the hell did that fit in that capsule? You know? Uh, Cause I know what batarangs are like. They're, you know, Adam, West, they look like Adam West batarangs. Those things are solid, you know? So it, <laughs> Barry Allen, Barry Allen helped him rig something the way he has his entire costume compressed into his ring. He's like, there you, you go. open this pellet and boom, you get three batarangs fully, like just like pop out and they're like hard as steel. <laughs> There you go. I like it. Yeah, but he cuts he cuts the wicks of everybody, not just his three friends, and then cuts Robin loose so Robin can. Uh, he owes these guys some bruises. He says, which yeah. I, I like. <laughs> and then it's I think it's kind of funny. Batman's like, "Watch out for the Joker, Robin." Me, I thought you were watching out for. <laughs> Eyes on the prize, guys. You know, I mean, somebody watch. The insane homicidal clown that's killed how many people? I mean, you know, it's <laughs> the most dangerous guy in the room. But yeah, handle handle the the thugs that are for hire that are for, do yeah. that first. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think Lynn Ween is. You know, I think he's kind of planting the seeds of what we saw in in uh, Detective Six Seventeen with Batman repeatedly commenting on thinking how the Joker never makes it easy. It's like. The Joker, even before he crippled 
uh, you know, Barbara killed Jason. The Joker's next level of his foes. You know, the Joker is is his is his arch enemy. You know, I mean, you can argue Rachel Ghoul's more his you know equal and this and that, but. The, the you know and I think we've even brought that up before I, I think we brought it up on here was the Joker really Batman's um, you know we talked about it with Bailey and, and Andy Leyland we, uh, that's I think right. when we did our crossover when we were talking about um, five way five way revenge yeah right yeah and I think stories like this prove that yeah the Joker was he was Batman's he was always Batman's arch enemy like since the moment pretty much the moment he showed up he really was yeah. I mean they've taken it to the, uh, <laughs> They've taken it honestly to a level where you honestly can't defend Batman letting him live at this point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, you really can't. I mean, honestly, uh, but uh, or anybody letting him live for that matter. But, uh, but yeah, it, it, it. I I think this proves that though. But uh, yeah, I yeah, it's. I think you know we're we're heading in that direction, and we got some of that in the in the uh, Batman versus the Hulk that yep. Lynn Wing wrote too. There's some lines like that in there. Um, I like the fight in the boat. It looks like Batman's literally just picking the Joker up and just throwing him around at one point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> He's like the Joker's upside down in the in the uh, the last the first panel in that last tier on page yep. seventeen, and he's just he's smiling. His hands are just off to the side, and <laughs> it just looks like Batman's just like Batman's literally going to pick him up and just slam his head into the bottom of the boat repeatedly yeah. or something. Exactly. <laughs> um. Actually, the the scene also like getting back to the animated series. This reminds me of the debut of Batgirl in the animated mm-hmm. series when she was yeah. going after um, Gil, who was voiced by Tim Matheson, wasn't it? I think it yeah, was Tim, Tim Matheson. Matheson yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, when yeah, she when she's chasing him on the speedboat, he, when he actually unmasks her, and he's like, "I didn't know it was you." She's like, "Would it have made a difference?" <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And he went to a coma, and I guess never come out because he never revealed that Barbara <laughs> right, was right. Batgirl. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do love that. Uh, you know, the, although I do I do question the Joker. The Joker actually says, you know, when he's you know after Batman falls in the water with the phony hand, he's got his hand sticking up, and he's like, "It's the old phony hand up the sleeve, gag sucker." That's the second time you fell for it. This and then, boom. So I wonder when Batman fell for it lately. You know, uh, was it this year? It wasn't this story. So I, yeah, I don't. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe that's another continuity nod that Paul Levitt's like, oh, he did it in this story, so let's maybe yeah, let's it's like put some footnotes in, Paul. Come on, <laughs> I I don't have the original comic anymore. I I I thought I still had like a dog-eared copy of it. I, I probably do somewhere, but it's not made it into my long boxes, and mm. it's probably like the you know like only about a, a handful of spreads that are still stapled together <laughs> where I read it to death. Uh, so I, I don't have a I don't have the original copy. There may have been some footnotes in it that were taken out when it was reprinted, but I kind of doubt it. Yeah, that's possible. I've got I've got the Len Wein collection and I've got it digitally, but uh... I've got the the more recent the Joker, the greatest stories ever told, which is a different collection than the greatest Joker stories ever told. I've got that one, but it's in a hardcover that's also falling apart. So I was looking at that, and then the Len Wein, Len Wein tells of the tales of the Batman. Uh, book, which is great, uh, but I, I, again, I love that the Joker's—he's heading to his doom, but he's just so caught up in laughing at Batman, he doesn't care. I mean, <laughs> what a great way to show how insane this guy is. I mean, he's self-preservation doesn't even enter the picture, you know. Mm-hmm. So I, I love it. It's it's great, <laughs> and of course, the explosion in the womb is impressive because 
it's Walt Simonson, and he probably like it wouldn't surprise me if he didn't draw that in himself. Because oh yeah, that, yeah. Yeah, that looks like a Walt Simonson sound effect. So, and no one believed that that was the end of the Joker, but you know we were back to that old Golden Age tradition at this point where nobody he's still out there. Uh, and I actually, I guess Steve Englehart was the one that just brought that back in uh, Laughing Fish. So right, right, yeah. Because I think up to that point before in recent stories, even Five Way Revenge, Batman apprehends the Joker at yep. the end. Yeah, yeah. And he had to be apprehended at the end of every issue of his comic or it violated the comic book code. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, seriously, I mean, that's ridiculous. Like, oh, you got to make sure he's caught every at the end of every issue because it's a comic about a villain. OK, it's like, wow, <laughs> way to way to pull the teeth on that one, guys. You know. <laughs> I guess I know how the next story is going to begin. <laughs> yeah, oh boy. Yeah. So, final thoughts on this one. It's really good. I don't have the emotional love for this one like I do the other one. Um, but it's still it's it's a really fun story. Um, I love the resolution of this one. I like the resolution of this a lot more than I like the resolution of the sign of the Joker that we read on the last episode. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the build up and everything, like the first. 75% of that storyline with the laughing fish and everything, I think is much better. Um, but in terms of the climax, like the, the last battle, like like the Joker and Batman fighting on this runaway speedboat and Batman trying to warn him and the Joker being so crazy that he like tricks Batman into falling off and doesn't even see his own eventual destruction. That just seems to epitomize everything about how they fight and Batman's like... I wish I could say he's dead, but I know he's not, and this whole thing will start over again. Um, I love it. I mean, yeah, like I said at the top, the first two, or the last two pages of this story are worth the price of admission. It's just, it, it makes, it takes an okay Joker story and makes it an all-time classic. Yeah, I, I think under other hands, this could be just another Joker story, mm-hmm. but I, I think due to the creative people involved, and the energy of the story, it elevates it beyond a pretty simple revenge story that, like we said, isn't honestly fleshed out that much or very well, really. Um, but, you know, none of that matters because it's it's a perfect little slice of a Batman-Joker battle, and, and I think it's it deserves its place in every version of the greatest Joker stories ever told. But Detective 617 should be in there, too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. all right folks we're going to take another promo break and we will come back with your listener feedback don't go away hi i'm one of the high priests of conchu ray and i have the sacred privilege of providing you the loony listener with a podcast honoring marvel's very own moon knight so join me and a host of others at Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or support the show by becoming a Patreon member. Into the Night, a Moon Knight podcast. It's time to get your conchu on. Okay, on the last episode, we discussed the end of the beloved detective comics run by Steve Englehart and Marshall Rogers. Uh, That is the Laughing Fish storyline from issues 475 and 476. We also talked about some of the big news that came out of DC's fandom thing. Uh, And as usual, we got a ton of great feedback across social media, and these are the comments that were left on the website, which you can always find at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Our first comment came from J. David Weeder, who said, 
Uh, this was about the Batman trailer. To the brutality in the trailer for the Batman, I did cringe, but then I realized that Batman may have been taking the single guy down so hard to stave off fighting the whole group. It seems tactical, and sure enough, one of the gang is on the verge of tears. At least, I hope that's what I'm seeing. Yeah, I I consider that, and I I hope he's right in that case. I hope Batman is going over the top with that beat down in order to basically scare the rest of the guys. I agree. I hope so, too. <laughs> and Dave came back later on in the comments section to, to talk about the stories that we covered. He said, Just to follow up on the Hugo Strange bit, Jerry Conway addressed this in Batman 356. Strange was very much alive and developed a bit of a man crush on Batman. He was manipulating Thorne behind the scenes, building up to appropriating Batman's identity. Maybe it was better that he was a ghost. Yeah... Yeah, although those were some they those stories got some great Don Newton art. That's that's all I'll say. So <laughs> I haven't reread them in a long time, but I remember them because I you know I was buying the comics at the yeah. time. So it's probably worth a reread, but it's definitely definitely takes in a different direction than I think Inglehart meant to. So yeah, uh, I, I was thinking about that too. I need to I need to reread those because um, it's been a long time and and sort of put them in context. I, I think either way, I mean. If he's if he's coming back, if he's explaining some of these things, I, I, uh, I the, uh, this whole thing is sort of like about what Strange does after his supposed death, and and the whole aspect of the, of whether he or not he's a ghost, and what actions he performs as a ghost, and if Jerry Conway can find it, make a retcon to sort of make that make sense, okay. I don't think it makes me enjoy the original stories any better because it still feels like. Englehart didn't do what I needed him to do in the first story, but you know, I, I, this, is, this is this particular hill that I'm willing to die on is that, that, that last issue and all the the things about the ghost aspect that that ticked me off. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> Damien drew a wider took offense when I said I wanted to expunge Damien from existence because I hated him. Uh, then Damien realized I was talking about Damien Wayne, the character, and not the listener. No, Damien, I, I don't mean you. I mean little, yeah. little bastard Damien Wayne. That's who I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, give Damien a break. He's one of our most loyal listeners. <laughs> not, not you, Damien. Just uh, Damien Wayne and the kid from the Omen. But uh, you, other Damien's are fine. So. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Uh, David Ace Gutierrez said, You guys clearly struggled to find any joy in the new Batman greater media products. I don't think you're going to find a sweet spot for Batman in anything other than a Brave and the Bold type animated series. And I'd be surprised if we get something like that anytime soon. Well, that's where you're wrong, David, because I enjoyed that Death in the Family film, and it's very much not a Brave and the Bold type thing. I just don't... And, and, and actually, I will say this, Batman, in that movie, I thought it was, I should have brought that up. Batman specifically says to Jason, you know, we don't murder, we don't, you know, we're not out for, uh, it's it's not right to kill the Joker because of what has happened. And I thought that was really refreshing because, you know, we're, we're on the edge of a Batman who's just going to do whatever, you know, put a tire over top of a guy's head to, you know, get a confession out of him. He's going to beat down brutally beat down a guy in front of a group of thugs and you know and i mean again i hope that's just for show uh but uh i, I thought that was surprising in an r-rated film that's supposed to be edgy that that this batman put the put the old school batman message across of let's not give in to our baser emotions and 
you know, act like uh, Ben Affleck's Batman in BBS. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I want to I want to give all these things a chance, especially the Batman movie cuz I like the people involved in the making of it and I keep coming back to this idea that I I mean, I I still really like The Dark Knight and Christopher Nolan's version of Batman kind of in isolation and I think there I think the Batman is a character that you can do dark, violent, um, interesting stories like this, like psychologically probing stories, and take these in a really weird and cool direction. I, I still think there's a place for that, and but I don't know. I don't know. I didn't get that feeling from this particular trailer, but this trailer, I, I don't know. Maybe it was just a, a feeling on that. I, I don't know. I, I don't want to close the door and say, no, I only want Lego Batman movies from now on because um, I don't think that's the case. And I also think it, part of my ambivalence towards this was the, the the whole DC universe across the board. You know, like a rising tide lifts all boats. If I had more faith in the other products, the other movies that DC was doing, then maybe I would feel better about, you know, that whatever they're doing with Batman 2. But I haven't had confidence in the other DC movies for the longest time. And I didn't, like the news that I heard about, fandom didn't make me want to see really any of these so it's uh, i don't know i don't know yeah yeah i'm 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 open to all different interpretations of batman as long as they don't go over a certain i guess i guess at some point i can't say i'm open to all because they go to over a certain line i am not interested in them but i i don't think this one is going to cross that line it's just getting on the edge of it that i'm just kind of tired of teetering on i'd like to back it up a little bit myself personally I did. Somebody told me that the trailer or the teaser, whatever was for that Batman movie, if you had just swapped him out for Moon Knight, if that had, if this had been a Moon Knight movie, well, I would be all about that. <laughs> be, yeah, I would, I would be in love with that. But I don't know. So Moon Knight's getting yeah. a, a series himself. So right, we'll see right, in yeah. a couple of years. Rob McCarthy said, "Wait, guys, the gang in Laughing Fish is absolutely not generic. Southpaw, blonde dude, blue eyes, Paul Newman guy, and tooth, black guy." It's the gang from Joker series, which had a name I can't remember, and apparently that was Joker issue number five from 1976. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, it was a. I, I actually I, I looked that up after his comment. Yeah, in the Joker's series, in issue five, he had a gang uh, with the those those names, and it, like I guess Marshall Rogers was drawing those same three guys. So, oh wow, yeah. that's cool. That's in the in the scene when he goes to the um the uh, copyright office. Copy, yeah, the copyright office. Uh, when gotcha. he's threatening that guy, and like the guys that we said, you know, the, he didn't draw them so generically. Each one of those goons looked like he had a distinct possibility. Rob pointed out, it's like, yeah, well, the, he was basing those on three previously established henchmen. So, oh, cool, yeah. So Chris Evans and his sweater were in Joker <laughs> issue number five too. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, I just, I just, uh, my wife showed me. There's the an honest trailer video for the movie Knives Out. And it kind of mentions that the the whole family in that movie they're all in heir to a sweater fortune or something like that because they're all wearing sweaters or something like that. That's how the, the family didn't make money on horror books; they made money on sweaters. I like it. I, I really enjoyed that movie, though. I will me, say too, that. me too. Me too. I thought we, we, the whole family sat around and watched that. We really enjoyed that. It was I, a lot yeah, of fun. I loved it. I loved it. Uh, Brian Linton said, are there any other Aquaman fans out there who feel sorry for those poor innocent fish that the Joker poisoned? 
Also, I wonder what happened to Jackson's cat after the events of 476. I think it would have been appropriate for Bruce Wayne to adopt it, given that the cat is now a poor orphan, whose owner was tragically murdered before its very eyes, and the teeth and claws. Um, okay, so for the first part, yeah, I was thinking, okay, yeah, he, he killed a lot of fish, but, you know, the Joker actually killed a whole lot of fish in this story, so, yeah, I do think Aquaman would have taken notice. Um, well, I mean, the cat, I mean, the cat had, I mean, it it survived long enough that it was able to attack its master and kill him, but do we know, I mean, in the the animated series, I think Batman gives the cat an antidote, mm-hmm. but yeah. um, we don't see that in the comics, so I was like, uh, did the cat survive or did the cat die too, and if... If Batman brought the cat home to the Batcave, does he have this jokerized cat terrorizing Ace the Bathound? <laughs> <laughs> See, Robin could have given it to the Joker's daughter, aka Harley Quinn, who was in Teen Titans with at the time. That could have been her. That could have been her pet sidekick. You know, so th- there you go. <laughs> Duella Dent could have had a, a pet sidekick. <laughs> you know, I think I forgot to mention this and. I, I don't think I ever read it, but I think it came up on 13th Dimension when uh, Dan Greenfield was interviewing Steve Englehart. He wrote a semi-sequel to The Joker Fish with the Joker and Aquaman in the Legends of the DC Universe title that was out for a while in the early 2000s, mm. uh, late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, so I have not read that. I, I bought that uh, title occasionally, and I think it came out toward the end, so... And I hope I'm not just having some kind of fever dream and it actually is real, but I think, I think it is. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, let us know guys, if I'm, I'm not going to look it up right now. Cause you know, we're, you know, we're trying to go get through feedback. So I'm not going to get on uh, Google and, and look it up, but I, I think that actually exists. So <laughs> if you, anybody read it, let us know what you thought of it. <laughs> was it legends of the dark Knight issue 50, that cover that had Joker with the, the smiling cat? No, it's it's Legends of the DC Universe. That no, no I'm um, thinking I'm thinking of a different um the the Legends of the Dark Knight series from the 80s and 90s. I think issue 50 has a cover. It might be a Brian. Oh yeah, Bullock that's cover. got the that's got him with the cat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's like a retelling. It's like a new version of Batman's first meeting with the Joker. Okay. Uh, and I think Denny wrote it, and I think uh, Brett Blevins drew it. But there was a a storyline um, with. Um, Apparently with Aquaman by Englehart huh. uh, in that Legends of the DC Universe, which was the kind of the same thing as Legends of the Dark Knight. It was just an anthology title that different creators came on and told about different characters in the DCU. It was a, it was a uh, Legends of the Dark Knight treatment for the rest of the DC Universe. Uh, it's like a late '90s, early 2000s book, and it's apparently vaguely familiar. I think I can picture a cover to that, but I can't. I think it shows the Joker like swimming with all these Joker fish around him or something. Yeah, and something. Yeah, but let us know, guys, if you read that. I think I don't think Inglehart was particularly happy with how that story came out, if I remember from from the Thirteenth Dimension interview. So, but yeah. Martin Gray said on Detective Comics four seventy five, I liked Electra set Zipatone wallpaper on Silver's wall. Bob Layton was using this sort of thing in Iron Man at the time. Am I wrong in seeing on copyright Agent Francis's wall looking like an eye test chart, a piece of copyright information for Letraset? <laughs> you probably aren't wrong. It's probably there. <laughs> I think Martin posted on Twitter like uh, uh, the, the panel the, from Silver's Room and a post from like an Iron Man comic or something else that showed like the, the various backgrounds that he was doing with that, like that whole Zipatone wallpaper kind of thing. That was pretty cool. Oh, yeah. That's, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it's... Uh, 
Yeah, I don't I don't see the the letter set thing on there, but it's it it probably is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, in 476, Joker turning the page from page 5 to 6 is brilliant. Why don't more comics play with the format like this? Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I guess a character like the Joker, it works. It might not work so well if it's like a, you know, a straight, uh, you know, character like Batman doing it or something himself. But right, right. The, the, it's kind of like the same way it works for Deadpool, like, and, you know, yeah, I guess. certain characters who you kind of understand they're, they're not quite in reality. They either break the fourth wall or they're they kind of lean into the cartoonishness, like a Harley or a She-Hulk. Somebody like that could do it. But um, maybe maybe somebody like a Jimmy Olsen could get away with it in a Superman comic. I don't know. Yeah, probably so. Uh, so far as the convenient lightning bolt and light go, I'm okay with a few Deus Ex Machina. This is a superhero comic. Just give me drama without things that could never happen. Uh, that last page, though, I never liked the lens flare either. I got it, but it was unmotivated and too precise, too neat. I also thought someone was aiming. Deadshot, maybe. None of which stops this being a classic image. Yeah, it, it, I, I kind of hate that that's the last page of, the, of that series because it just – and I love – everybody knows I love Marshall Rogers, but it's just like, oh, no, that was like, oh, you just – no, you should have – no. <laughs> just <laughs> – and I wish I wish they had done it as some kind of overlay surprint even back in the day, so Batman could be underneath it, and then you could like tone it down in reprints or something, you know, yeah. or take it out or do a director's cut or something. I mean, I don't want to change his art, but at, you know, at the same time, it's just yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, Martin continues. Isn't it weird that from the time Julie Madison left until the debut of Silver St. Cloud, Bruce Wayne never had a regular girlfriend? If Vicky Vale had been presented as more than a pest, Alfred would never have had to die. Uh, yeah, I guess Bruce had a girlfriend named Linda Page uh, after Julie uh, for a bit. And in fact, that's who's getting married in that uh, the uh, the autobiography of Bruce Wayne when Bruce is at the wedding when oh, yeah. Scarecrow attacks. And yeah, so I mean, he's like, you know, he's basically, you know, going over how he's wasted his life basically as Batman. <laughs> Uh, or, you know, Bruce Wayne's life has been wasted since he's been Batman. Uh, so, yeah, but other than her, yeah, it's, yeah, that is weird. And that's definitely the reason that, you know, because, oh, God, we can't have, you know, we can't prove Dr. Wortham right. Oh, God, no, we've got to, <laughs> we've got to kill off. We've got three men living in a house. So uh, let's bring in Aunt Harriet. I think it's kind of funny because in the uh, Return of the Cape Crusader animated movie and the, uh, I don't know if they did it so much in the Two-Face sequel with Shatner, but, Aunt Harriet makes some uh, lines, has some lines that kind of point to the fact that she thinks that that Bruce and Dick might be in a gay relationship herself, which is kind of, I don't know, that's kind of troubling because Dick's underage, uh, so <laughs> it's not the the gay part that's anything wrong, but it's just the underage part, I'm right. sorry, that's illegal, <laughs> so, and it, you know, that's just wrong, so it's like, I didn't really like that, but I thought it was kind of funny because Aunt Harriet was supposed to be the remedy of the, oh, let's stop all the gay talk, you know. Uh, so, yeah. But, yeah, you're right. If Bruce had more girlfriends, Alfred wouldn't have had to got crushed by that boulder, become the outsider and all that stuff. So, <laughs> And also, Bruce Wayne is a very rich white man. So, you know, the law works differently for him. <laughs> oh, ooh. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Captain Entropy said, Ryan and Chris, from the movie talk to the comic itself, you expressed so many sentiments I agreed with, and expressed them so well, I thought I'd have nothing to say. But then we got to the end. 
And from here, Captain Entropy has quite a long comment. So, <laughs> why the multiple deus ex machina work in my head? And he makes the note uh, that it, in, in Latin, the plural would be dei. Um, one, could Hugo Strange have produced a harmless chemical agent that absorbs into the skin and stays detectable wash after wash, at least for a week or so? Of course, that might be doable in real life, and it's certainly doable in comic book science. I mean, permethrin bug repellent stays in your fatigues for 20 laundry cycles. Right. Seriously, though, this is another example of wasted potential as a product, as a productive law-abiding citizen. Sell that stuff to the intelligence community and law enforcement, buy a mansion in the islands, and then call it a day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Number two, finding the vapor analyzer. A criminal mastermind put it there for him to find. Strange wants Joker caught because as a psychiatrist, he knows Joker will see Strange's knowledge of Batman's identity as a threat to his malevolent fun. Done. Next batter. No, no, no. He, because <laughs> he, that, that means he anticipated that what the Joker's plot was going to be and who he would target and when. Because he left the vapor analyzer there in the wilderness outside of one of the target's apartments. So, I, I, yeah. No, no. Um, number three ah the lightning strike first let me concede that the Franklin ending is far superior because release the Franklin cut (laughs) I would pay money for that one (laughs) if we if we could somehow resurrect Marshall Rogers to have him redraw that yes (laughs) Um, because it does everything I'm about to praise the lightning strike for even better now with that annoying bit of intellectual integrity out of the way I shall begin A. It's entirely plausible that some idiot playing on a construction girder umpteen stories in the air in a thunderstorm would get struck by lightning. Conveniently timed? Absolutely. And that's part of why Chris is better. But when you go around murdering people and taking stupid chances, it will eventually come back to bite you. So I approve. Of course, in Chris's version, Joker's own attack defeats him, which is consistent with how villains fall in the Book of Proverbs, the Quran, and probably Hindu karma. Poetic as all get out too, and also how he they died in died in this story we just covered. Yeah, in the absolutely, absolutely. Story. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> B. Batman typically has so much agency, re the Bat God, that the books lose all dramatic tension. In Inglehart's stories, Batman could lose. Sometimes the challenges are so tough that he has to get a lucky break, or the villain has to make a mistake for him to win. That's wonderful, and it still gives him more agency than Indy at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, that I and I love that story too. <laughs> Uh, agree to disagree? I mean, like, like getting lucky once in a while and have the villain fall by their own thing, that's that's part of it, but, like, for him to just be more or less a passive observer to the villain's fall at the end of a eight-issue story arc, like, if, like, people have said they want this, this storyline to be adapted into a movie, that Warner Brothers should just take basically Englehart and Marshall Rogers would run and make that into a movie or with, with certain adaptations. I mean, would movie going audiences accept that ending if Batman like did not, was not actively involved in taking, I don't, I don't think so, but I agreed to disagree. Right. Like if the Joker, like if in, in Batman 89, if the Joker had like slipped off the helicopter ladder rope without Batman, you know, grappling the gargoyle to his foot, you know, 
I mean, wouldn't it have been like, well, the Joker just fell. You know, that Batman, Batman did, it's like the kids in Superman 2. Yeah. Batman did do nothing. Let's get out of here. You know, I mean, yeah. it, you know. <laughs> so it was just a lightning bolt hit that helicopter or a sudden east wind knocked him down. No. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, then Captain Entropy came back a few comments later after finished listening to the whole podcast. He said, my argument above is dependent on the not a ghost retcon. I agree with all of your points about the ghost, Ryan. Uh, and then two, I'm very, very happy that Englehart portrayed Thorne as a more gentlemanly gangster, realism be damned. I don't think it's that unrealistic, as criminals generally see some crimes as worse than others, the same as law-abiding citizens, according to a friend who used to work in law enforcement. There was enough tension as written. I don't want to think about Silver dealing with the trauma of an attack, even if it were successful. It would have made this comic seem far less enjoyable to me. That's fair. That's, I mean, that's fair. That's... Maybe my head was just in a different place when I read it, but yeah. Uh, number three, Ryan, I agree 100% with your point about the Joker's unrealistic survival. In fact, you remind me of a very intelligent friend who once said, I'll believe a man can fly before I'll believe the Joker would still be alive. I actually don't like reading new Joker stories now because they require so much suspension of disbelief. But to the old ones like this one, get a, get a pass for some reason. Yeah, and I, I think that was, for me, saying, like, you know, people's, well, we we talk about now, how could Batman let, the, at this point, is Batman criminally negligent in letting the Joker live to murder more people? And I still think, I was like, you know, they're, they're the, the cops, the state would have murdered the Joker long ago. You know, it's not just on Batman's hands, like, you know. He, he he would like the, yeah they would have put it they he would have been poisoned in Arkham Asylum he would have been shot in custody and just said well he was escaping and everybody would believe it so yeah Chuck Dixon and Graham Nolan did that Joker Devil's Advocate graphic novel mm-hmm. where they finally like nope we're putting you in the chair so yeah. <laughs> yeah. you know so at least they addressed it in there you know yeah. so yeah yeah he actually uh, he the last thing that Captain Entropy said was if I were a citizen of Gotham and something awful happened to the Joker on his way to prison I wouldn't be very motivated to question it either I'm not saying excessive force is ever justified the lack of justification is what makes it excessive but some crimes are far more understandable than others uh, some guy named Rob Kelly says the page with the hitchhiking Hugo Strange goes strangling Thorn is so perfectly executed that it genuinely scared me when I was a little kid. And Rob had the comic with the orb in it. It's still scary. <laughs> I had ended up I had ended up with a coverless copy of the comic and that I had never seen a sequence like that in a superhero comic perfectly paced and laid out. Not that everything needs to be upgraded to a movie, but I have always thought this sequence would make for an amazing cold open to a Batman movie if they ever decided to do Hugo Strange as the villain. It would be abjectly terrifying and really set the stage for Strange being a for Strange being a powerful force to deal with. These issues are just so good. It's amazing. Not Max Allen Collins and Don Heck good, <laughs> but good. <laughs> well, nothing is not Max Allen Collins and Don Heck good because they're just not good. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if they had worked together. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, they did on the mime issue. Remember that that Max Allen Collins and, and Don Heck drew the Max Allen Collins. Did he? Was uh, did, he did he ink it? Did he ink oh, Dave I Cockrum? Remember. I think he inked Dave Cockrum. And yeah. yeah, on the mime. That's what it was. He inked it. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> Edo Bosnar said, on Silver St. Cloud, to loosely paraphrase Jessica Rabbit, I can't help it if I'm sexy, I'm just drawn that way. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, 
Gothos Mansion wrote in to say, I don't have a lot to add about the discussion of Laughing Fish sign of the Joker. I pretty much agree with everything Chris said. Good man. But he was <laughs> he was able to bring up his points more intelligently and without my thick accent. I don't know, dude. You keep saying that, but my accent's pretty thick too. <laughs> I agree that we gotta get this guy on the podcast so we can see who can who can out out redneck. There you go, out redneck each other. We used that term earlier. I'm sorry, Gothos, if I called you a redneck, I didn't be but you know, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I agree this was the first perfect mix of the Joker as killer and clown, something very few writers have gotten right since. This is still my second favorite Joker story ever with Lynn Ween, Walt Simonson, Dick Giordano's dreadful birthday, Dear Joker, taking Englehart's Joker template and perfecting it. Well, there you go, Gothos. I'm sure you'll like this episode. So. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I think, I think I read that comment. I was like, hey, you know what? We should cover that one paired with my, my Joker story. No. Yeah, so, that's, so thanks, Gothos. My only gripe with the story and probably the arc as a whole is the vapor reader gadget. Like you, I would have preferred Batman use his detective skills. Plus, the gadget confirms that Strange is really a ghost. If Englehart removed that scene, readers can decide if Strange is really a ghost or if Thorne is just going insane. Whatever works best for them. I'm a good bit older than you guys, born in 1971 with my first comics having September or October 1976 on sale dates. I think I listened to every episode, but I don't remember what period of Batman Ryan first read. Well, now you do. Uh, <laughs> Chris seems to have been indoctrinated in the Bronze Age pretty early. I wonder if I may be more forgiving of rushed Bronze Age endings because they are what I grew up with. Writers had to come up with three or four stories a month since they were usually working on multiple books. Obviously, they couldn't spend as much time developing their ideas as modern writers who come up with one idea and milk it for three or four years. <laughs> Still, I would rather read a Bronze Age story that leaves me wanting more than a modern one that leaves me wondering, when is this going to get over? (laughs) (laughs) Very good point. Very good point, Gotham. Uh, In 1976 through 77, I was introduced to so many types of Batman. O'Neill Adams, Novick Giordano in Treasuries, David B. Reed in Batman, Haney Aparo in B&B, Englehart Rogers Austin in Detective, and Fox Broom Infantino in Batman Family Reprints. No wonder my taste in Batman is so schizophrenic. Heck, the second Batman story I read was Gorilla Boss of Gotham City. (laughs) (laughs) That's a classic. (laughs) Yeah, 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 to answer that question, obviously, like the first Batman comics, well, the stories I read in 89 when the movie came out, and then my collecting regularly started in 90 and went through 93 with, uh, with, with Nightfall. Um, and then during that same time, I mean, I was collecting Batman, Detective, eventually Legends of the Dark Knight and Shadow of the Bat, and almost all of the tr- like one-shot graphic novels or, or collections or things like that around that time. Pretty much almost everything I was getting. Um, and also backfilling some of the some of like the late '80s and, and the the post-crisis stuff that we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast. And then over over that time, I would occasionally dabble into some of like the the earlier Bronze Age stuff. But it was more in the more in the 2000s that I started kind of going back and filling in some of the the Silver and Bronze Age stuff through uh, showcase collections. And then uh, especially once the 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 signature artist hardcovers like the Legends of the Dark Knight and Tales of the Batman collections, you know getting the the Marshall Rogers and the Don Newton and the Gene Colan collections and that really kind of fueled my interest in in more of the Bronze Age stuff and then with Comixology picking up a lot of those digitally to to read mo- uh, most of the Jerry Conway run I don't I don't think I've actually read the entire thing but I've read hmm. most of Conway's run yeah I, I really enjoyed Conway's run overall he was definitely he was definitely he was definitely taking Engelhart's back to the golden age yeah. uh, approach and yeah. and and running with it um you know actually I'm a, I'm I'm not a whole lot uh, younger than you, um, 
Gothos, I was born in seventy late, very late seventy four. But uh, I actually started having comics bought for me like uh, when I was like I don't know, like barely three. Uh, so uh, so you started reading around the same time that he did. Yeah, even though, pretty much. Even though you're so much younger. Yeah, yeah pretty just, much. Yeah. yeah, as Michael Bailey likes to point out, I had a comic in my hand coming out of the womb. Uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so I think we pinned it down to that that Super Friends comic, uh, issue number seven or eight, whichever one it was uh, that I covered with Rob. That was one of my very first comics I bought, uh, and that was in 77. So not too far behind you. Yeah. Uh, but so, yeah, I, I was exposed to a lot of the, a lot of the same things yeah, you were, and that's probably another reason why I like so many different types of Batman mm-hmm. as well. And, and around the time of, of um, uh, Batman uh, 321, I was – Picking the books up pretty regularly at that point. Um, I guess I was old enough at that point to to know to like pester my mom or somebody to take me up to the drugstore and and you know see what comic books they had and you know um, I, I, I ask you know can I get a comic book or something and I, and I you know I'm, I, there's holes in my what I bought but you know uh, I might skip a month or two here or there but from that point on till probably about 2008 I had pretty much every issue of Batman and Detective Comics so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah so yeah. yeah. I, when I was a little kid, I did not like reading and writing. I I really struggled with it. Um, I was just I was very slow. It was difficult, uh, and it was like I I mean I I remember like you know in in school like when like kids like went out to recess I would have to like stay behind a few times just because I hadn't finished reading or writing like some like worksheet or something in class and everything and and my mom would read with me she would sit up and like read books and she, uh, it would be like okay I read a page and then she read a page and I kept on cheating I'd be like okay I'll read this paragraph you read the rest of the page okay I only want to read this sentence and I kept on doing and and it just I I didn't like it I didn't I I, I felt like I wasn't very good at it um and comics change that. I mean, once I, I actually had the pictures to look at and could follow the story sequentially with the images, that was what I did at first. I was just looking at the comics, and then slowly, steadily, I started reading the dialogue balloons and the captions and the thought bubbles and everything, and, and it got to that point, and really, I mean, eventually it reached that point where it switched, where suddenly I was I was following them, not for the art, but actually for the stories and the characters, and I was dialogue and character first art second and then i was reading novels and books and prose and stuff like that and it just it flipped but comics were what made me want to be a reader and a writer going forward so yeah that's great yeah comics were definitely a motivator for me because i mean i probably told this story before on podcasts but I did not want to go. I was not keen on going to kindergarten. I hadn't been to any kind of preschool or anything. I I stayed home. Uh, I stayed at my grandparents' house uh, during the day, three days a week, because my mom and dad both worked, and then my mom was off two days a week. So I was like, at, you know, getting pampered by my grandmother and then pampered by my uh, mom. You know, uh, so I didn't want to go to school. And but my dad's like, now, son, if you go to school, you'll learn how to read. You can read all these comic books you got. You can read them yourself. Not your mom won't have to read them to you more. You can be able to read them. And I, I went to kindergarten, you know, come home, first day of school. My dad's like, well, son, what you think of school? I ain't learned how to read nothing. <laughs> I don't know how many times I've heard that story over the years, but I felt that was my first reaction to school. It's like I thought I was just going to walk in and I was going to download all this knowledge of how to read and just, yeah. You put on so, a helmet and all of a sudden it's like. Oh. Yeah, exactly. Cerebro or something, you know, just. Yeah, it, it, yeah, I was really pissed off that I didn't. I can't. I didn't co. I can't read my comic books. What the hell, Dad? You liar! You know, he still tells that story. So yeah. 
Uh, just a few comments left. Uh, Tim Price said, so many great comments in this show, and here I have little to add. Just thanks for covering these issues, since it gave me a chance to read this run for the first time. Well, happy to do it. Happy to <laughs> be the inspiration for running, uh, re, uh, happy to be the inspiration for reading some great comics. Yeah, what what demon did you sell your soul to, Tim, that you hadn't read the Inglehart Rogers run yet? I mean, this is Mephisto, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> And finally, Dr. Ange said, I have always loved the Laughing Fish arc for many reasons. The art is wonderful. Inglehart channels the early Joker story perfectly, making it an homage, not a copy. And remember, back then, these things were deep cuts for knowledgeable fans. Not everyone had access to early Joker stories to read about the effects of Joker Venom. And of course, Silver St. Cloud. As for the last issue being a bunch of non-Batman finales, I think sometimes you just have to let the story wash over you and let the events unfold. Yes, Batman could have solved everything, but after decades of him being omnipotent and omniscient, I don't mind a story where he wins because a ghost left him a doohickey. (laughs) Agree to disagree. Uh, And the idea that Strange could make so much happen from beyond the grave amped him up in my mind as a villain. For sure, I thought that someone of his power wasn't dead and would show up later. Even the lightning strike didn't bother me because so many Joker stories end with him unwittingly leading to his apparent demise. Falling off a moving train into giant smokestacks, crashing a boat into rocks when his fake hand up the sleeve trick leads him to look away, etc. We just covered that, yeah. Mm -hmm. So standing on a metal beam high in the air in a lightning strike seems par for the course. I do think that when you read comics to critique, sometimes you can get caught up in the minutiae. But my guess is that this flawed issue still ranks higher than a Max Allen Collins issue, which didn't have any Deus Ex Machina. Um, <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, I can, can see that. It was definitely much better than that. Yeah, uh, no, no, no. This is. I mean, I can't speak for Ryan, but I, I, I never got the, the 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 idea that you that you put this below <laughs> a Max Allen Collins story. So <laughs> no, no, far from it. I, it was. Uh, it was it was more frustrating because it was like so close to being perfect, but mm-hmm. these like these few little things kept it from being there. Um, but yes, still better than I would say ninety percent of what we covered on the first two years of Batman Pot Nightcast. Yeah. <laughs> Everything but Batman Year One, basically. Pretty much. <laughs> like, Although yeah, early, the early Grant Bar Grant they, um, oh, yeah, Bar yeah, Davis I, stories are good, yeah. yeah. And I remember, yeah. I remember being harsh on on some of those those uh, Mike Barr, uh, Alan Davis issues, but I would still I would still rather read the, those again. Those are those are still really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um. So that's going to be it for this one. Again, I I I think we should probably take maybe a year long moratorium on Joker stories. Um, yeah, I think so. But we we have plenty to cover. Um, we actually haven't talked about. Do we know what we want to do next? Uh, no, I don't. I don't think we have, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we've got a couple things in the bat burner. Maybe the the early man bat saga. Uh, if we can get to that. Oh um, yeah, we talked about that. That'd be good. That's Frank Robbins writing yeah, that. Yeah. But of course, Neil Adams already. Yeah. Art, so. Yeah. Uh, once we get to 2021, I definitely I definitely want to do more uh, Bray Fogel issues that we've kind of been dancing around, going back to some of those like the the early introduction of the ventriloquist and Cornelius Stirk, those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, we can do. We got to do Dark Knight, Dark City before Michael and Andy get their hands on it. 
Um, Hands off. <laughs> yeah, there are there are a few like one shots and, and graphic novels too. There's um there's Batman Annual number eight, the uh, the the Trevor Von Eden drawn one with mm-hmm. Rachel Ghoul, which I know you like. We could do the the player on the other side. Oh. Um, there's the the graphic novel Night Cries, which is one of my favorite stories. I'd love to cover that someday. Yeah, we got we got some stuff that we can talk about. Yeah, oh, de- definitely, definitely. There's all sorts of great Batman stuff out there that that we can that we can cover. And yeah, yeah. So I'm 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 excited. I'm kind of excited for the the we've, you know with the unlimited buffet of Batman <laughs> stories. That even though nobody wants to go to a buffet nowadays, uh, <laughs> <laughs> a buffet. What's that? Batman Nightcast is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Batman Nightcast. You can find me on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or email me at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter at supermatespod or email me at supermatespodcast at gmail.com. Special thanks to our Patreon supporters. For more information on how you can support the Fire and Water Podcast Network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. You can also support us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Every review helps iTunes push this podcast to a wider audience. Batman Nightcast is also available on Spotify. This podcast is not affiliated with DC Comics, and the views expressed here belong solely to us. All music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes, and no copyright infringement is intended. Thank you for listening. Thank you for